It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 387. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 2C at the Holiday Inn Riverwalk in San Antonio. Today's show is recorded on the 15th of August, 2019. In today's episode, a fallen hero returns to Dallas, and the Boeing 737 almost runs out of runway, taking off in Moscow. More news, your feedback, and in today's Plane Tales, the disappearance of Miss Hobart. So get all settled in, tray tables and seatbacks in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 387 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where we talk about aviation news and discuss uh, the news, and we answer your great feedback. And I'm a captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier based in Atlanta, and joining me today to help with uh, the news and feedback from his studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, Former captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Well, hi there, Jeff. I very much hope that the rest of the show goes better than uh, us trying to get it set up today. A bit of a nightmare for you, but we're here eventually and looking forward to a good one. I am looking forward to it as well. Also joining us from, well, he's at the Marriott somewhere. He'll, he'll tell us about that in a second. I've already forgotten where he is. He's on a layover, a long 30 hours, 30 plus hour layover somewhere. He is a barbecue master, motorcycle rider, pontoon boat skipper, underwater photographer, and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana. Oh, wow. We're finally here. <laughs> it's been one of those days. Uh, and yes, I am in the Marriott in Chattanooga, Choo Choo, Tennessee. Oh, Chattanooga. Okay. Chattanooga. Very good. I don't think I've ever been there. I mean, I've been to Chattanooga, not to the uh, that hotel though. Very I haven't. Good. I haven't been to an overnight in Chattanooga since my regional days. That's no. how long it's been since I've been here. And that, uh, just to let everybody know, that's not familiar. Chattanooga, Tennessee, is just across the Georgia-Tennessee border. In fact, uh, Nick and I passed by it um, pretty quickly when we started our road trip trip a couple of, uh, weeks ago. Uh, and, um, not very, I wouldn't imagine that's a very long flight from Atlanta. 19 minutes. 19 minutes. Yeah. Well, that would be pretty quick. <laughs> hey. All right. That went pretty quick. Um, very good. Very good. So, um, we, we, uh, did initially have Steph with us, but we were, um, as Nick mentioned, we've been experiencing some technical difficulties, uh, especially with audio. And for some reason I was not getting stephanie's audio very clearly where i actually couldn't hear her at all and so uh, she decided to leave she needs to pack she's on a great adventure which i hope she'll be able to tell us about when she does rejoin us at some point it may be while she's on the road en route to the airport 
but we hope to uh, have her back and we hope that it's going to work and everybody will be able to hear her, uh, especially me because I'm the one that's recording audio. So we'll see. We'll have our fingers crossed with that. So how's everybody been? Nick? Yeah, I'm doing okay. Thanks very much, Jeff. Uh, uh, I had plenty on. Uh, lots of, uh, you know, retirement kind of things. Uh, I'm doing my photography. I've I've been playing plane tails into uh, Evernote so that we've got uh, always got one in uh, store. Just finished uh, uh, next week's, which is a great story. Thoroughly uh, enjoyed doing that one. Uh, and today I was down at the Bowling Green um, introducing some uh, uh, new folks to the, uh, the delightful uh, pastime of lawn bowls. But apart from that, nothing special from here in this, I'm afraid. Okay. Um, well, we have Dana, you didn't, uh, you weren't able to join us uh, last week, uh, but you're here with us today and, uh, let's see, let's try to catch up with uh, what's been uh, going on with you. Well, um, as, as our internal communications among, uh, us indicated, I'm not going to go into a whole lot of details other than the fact the last two weeks, well, last week's trip and then this week's trip has started off. Uh, in not a uh, very friendly and enjoyable manner in any stretch of the imagination. So uh, I'm just going to leave it at that. It's been a very challenging couple of weeks for me since Oshkosh. And, you know, listen back to uh, the last episode you guys put out and, and fantastic job. Uh, I missed uh, being able to comment on uh, my experience in Oshkosh. And I guess this would probably be a good time for me to, to just say that I really uh, thoroughly enjoyed uh, being there with everybody, uh, and I and I second uh, your uh, observations as far as the one of the best parts of Oshkosh for me was uh, being able to meet the the community members, the, everybody that uh, helps to make this community so uh, awesome to be a part of, and really uh, renewed my uh, my feeling of pride in in being a part of the show, and knowing that you you the listeners out there are really. Uh, um, are really paying attention and, and enjoy what we put out there. So that was, for me personally, real rewarding, spending some really quality time with the, uh, the crew members, uh, you know, of course, uh, Nick, Nick and, and Steph and uh, Liz, and of course, uh, Captain Jeff, um, and providing some, uh, some entertainment and some good uh, liquid libations, uh, which I heard you mention uh, a little bit. And then, of course, the, uh, the food, uh, that was a great pleasure for me to, to be a part of that uh, whole, whole, whole fun time up there in Oshkosh. So I just wanted to comment on that. Um, and beyond that, uh, flying has been flying, and very, very challenging uh, last couple couple of trips for me. So okay, well, um, not a lot with me. Uh, just flew a four. Well, I'm on the in, on a four day trip on day three, and uh, one more uh, day tomorrow. Uh, the longest, toughest day. I know you're going to really have a lot of sympathy for me, Dana. We go from San Antonio right. to Atlanta and then a Columbus turn. And then uh, that's it. We're finished. So uh, first day was a deadhead leg to um, Louisville. That <laughs> was really tough. And then the next day was uh, two legs ended up in uh, Memphis and then two legs today in San Antonio. So it's a very nice trip. And, you know, mm -hmm. I just wish I could share it with you, Dana, but I just can't. Yeah, my, my heart is bleeding for you. <laughs> absolutely bleeding for you but man you'd be a very senior first officer on this you could fly these kind of trips too 
<laughs> yeah. I'm after after this summer. I'm actually very strongly considering going back to a softer. Yeah. I've had it. I mean, I, <laughs> I I've never been beat so beat up in my entire life. It's it's been it's been brutal. Hmm. brutal. Well, sorry to sorry to hear you've been having uh, lots of issues. Uh, hopefully, it's just it's just we'll my luck. We know that. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. We were going to talk about Steph's wild and crazy adventure, but we're not going to yet until she comes back with us. So. We'll put that, uh, we'll move that on. Oh, I've our... got one little thing. Okay, please. Um, today's plain tale was suggested by Chris Postill, uh, who is, I think he has a handle, Stumbling Trout. Anyway, turns out his uh, folks live not far from me, and he's coming down to see him this weekend, so I'm going to get a chance to thank him in person for his suggestion for today's plain tale oh, nice. and uh, have a beer with him over the weekend. So looking forward to that. Oh, that sounds like a, a great time to be had. Absolutely. Okay. Um, well, we, without further ado, let's move on, keep this thing rolling, and uh, let's talk about the coffee fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG. Community, coffee and tea, and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. This is where I talk about the coffee fund, how you can contribute to the show financially. And this is where I read all the list of people that uh, gave us contributions using the coffee fund classic method. And here's my list. Hear it? Okay. Uh, recurring payment from George Leslie using the Coffee Fund Classic. And we have some one-time contributions from Esther Allen, Dan Cole, and, you hear the bell? A $100 contribution, a very large, generous contribution from Dave Schuler. Thank you very much, Dave, for that and for everybody participating in the Coffee Fund uh, via the Classic Method. Now, last week, uh, the Patreon patron thing was quite busy and uh, full of new producers and such. Kind of quiet this week, but that's okay. Um, no new patrons this week, but we do have a producer, Philip Timmer, who doubled his pledge. Yes, I said doubled his pledge from $1 to $2 per episode. Thank you so much, Philip, for that. And if you're interested in learn more about the coffee fund, head over to airlinepilotguide.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. Stand by for news. Ural Airlines lands in cornfield after bird strikes take out both engines. A uh, bird strike on Ural, Ural A321 uh, in, uh, shortly after takeoff uh, from one of the Moscow airports. It was uh, flight 6178 from Moscow's uh, Zhukovsky airport to Semferopol. Not sure. 
Uh, upon takeoff, the aircraft sustained numerous strikes from birds to its power plants and made an emergency landing, says the carrier. It came down in a field apparently a few moments after takeoff from runway 12. The crew and passengers were not injured, adds the airline. Russia's Federal Investigative Committee has opened a routine criminal probe into the uh, event, stating that the aircraft made a hard landing in a field in the Ramonskoye district. Uh, It says an investigative team is organizing the necessary actions with the aim of establishing all the circumstances and causes of the accident. Images from the scene showing the A321 in a field of tall crops with evacuation slides deployed for multiple exits indicate that the aircraft suffered substantial damage to its engines. Uh, So apparently they took off. uh, Reports are they hit um, a flock, uh, a large flock of seagulls, and it took out uh, one of the engines uh, immediately, and then the other engine was producing partial power, and then uh, I guess it was determined that it wasn't going to be enough to provide enough power to get the uh, airplane back around and climbing safely and then back to uh, to an airport. Um, again, you know, we have very little information about this so far, but is this a miracle in the cornfield? Is that what we're going to call this? Not miracle on, uh, on the Hudson? Well, it sounds like a damn good job. Uh, the chap did, uh, or the mm-hmm. crew did, uh, Jeff. So yeah, I think anytime you, uh, bring, uh, an engine uh, in, particularly for a crash landing on the ground without any power and you get away with, well, I think the report was 10 packs, uh, 10 passengers injured, four of them hospitalized, but it sounds like there was no, no one died on board. I think that's a remarkable result. So congratulations to everybody. Right. Um, looking at the Aviation Herald um, article, gives us a little bit more information. I believe now the uh, update, I'm waiting for this thing to load. It's not loading. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it'll be very interesting Interesting to see what the uh, media, well, while it's loading, Jeff, mm-hmm. what the media's take on this is and how they spin it, you know, whether they spun it or spin it in Russia uh, the same way that uh, Captain Sully and Jeff Skiles, by the way, uh, the FO, uh, landed on the Hudson. So I we'll did see notice, how that... Yeah, I did notice in one of the articles I was reading that said the pilot brought the airplane down, safely landed in the cornfield. And I thought, no, pilots did that. You know, it yes. wasn't one person that did that. Um, that's uh, one of those things that irritates us a bit. Yeah, it's, it's, it is irritating. Okay. Um, now I have the article. Um, the, I believe the count now is like 23 uh, injuries, one serious. I'm not sure exactly uh, what the serious injury is. But as you said, uh, Nick, nobody uh, was uh, fatally injured in this accident. And from what it, you know, the way it looks at this point is that the uh, pilots did a great job um, analyzing the situation they had and making uh, very quick actions to get the airplane safely on the ground. Uh, One thing I was going to maybe discuss a little bit is that they left the gear up. And I'm wondering if I trying to think through this, of course, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking is so easy to do when you're not in the situation. Uh, but you know, I'm, I'm wondering if I would have left the gear up or if I would have put the gear down. Um, and I have a feeling that my initial, um, uh, reaction would have been to lower the gear, but I, you know, I don't know. What's your thoughts about that? Well, I'm trying to recall my, uh, uh, 
course, landing checklists, I'm pretty sure it included putting the gear down. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, uh, they may not have a lot of time to go through those checklists. So mm-hmm. it might have been a case of, uh, you know, uh, trying to keep the drag down as uh, much as possible while he used that partial engine power to consider getting back to the airfield. And when he realized he couldn't do it and he had to straighten up and put it down into the cornfield, mm-hmm. there was just insufficient time to get uh, everything completed. So I suspect that might have had something to do with it. Yeah. Or also, uh, you know, maybe uh, at that point they didn't have hydraulics to lower the gear and they didn't have time to get the gear down. So well, you'd um, still have um, gravity, wouldn't you? Um, yeah, it's yeah. got a gravity uh, extension system. Yeah, but, I don't know uh, how the Airbus is, so I just... Yeah, yeah you, know, you have to do a, a lot of things very quickly, that's for sure, to, to make all that happen. Yeah, I suspect they might have just run out of time to get yeah. all those uh, all those checks done. Yeah. I mean, in, in my thought process is, you know, like you, Jeff, I, I'm I'm probably going to put the landing gear down. I mean, at least, at the very least, the uh, struts can absorb some of the impact and help mm-hmm. help the you know structure of the aircraft to, to be better in, intact. Uh, and then, of course, with an Airbus or any aircraft with with the, the pods underneath the wing, I would think, all right, well, do I really want to try to land the airplane with these pods that might grab onto whatever it's hitting? And uh, then flip the sat tumbling the aircraft, so that would be another consideration. So that's another reason why I think I would make sure I put down the landing gear. Yeah, I think that would have been an automatic reaction on my part. I mean, I don't even think I would have discussed it. I would have just reached over and put the handle gear handle down. But again, that's just what I think I would have done. I really don't know. I've never right. been in that situation, so you know, I might be so shocked by what was happening there that I may not have even thought of it. You know, so yeah. uh, again, we're not. We don't want to sound like we're second guessing at all because. We know very little so far, and uh, what, what we do know is the fact that nobody died in this incident, and that's a good thing. It's a great thing. Yeah, it's, it's a great thing. It's a credit to the uh, strength and design of the aircraft, just as uh, Boeings have uh, uh, crash-landed and been very successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, Airbus seem to have built an equally uh, robust product, so that's good to see. All right, uh, let's move on to item A, and... Uh, uh, this um, is a link to uh, the Twitter account of uh, a Jackson Proskow, or Proskow, P-R-O-S-K-O-W. Let me read a little bit of his, um, of his writing. Uh, he's the Washington Bureau Chief for Global News. For reporters, the flight home is often a chance to decompress. It's the first opportunity to reflect on a story and process our emotions. It's the point at which we step back from our deadlines and from the pressure. It's the point at which we, it can all sink in. This week, the long flight home took me from the devastating shooting in El Paso, Texas, to Washington, D.C. with a layover in Dallas. Dallas became the place where the weight of the world seemed to melt away, the place where the good outweighed the bad for the first time in days. When we arrived at our gate at Dallas's Love Field, I noticed a few camera crews waiting. I didn't think much of it. Perhaps they were waiting for a politician or a newsmaker. A few minutes later, a gate agent from Southwest Airlines appeared and started handing out American flags. Then came the announcement over the PA system. A gate agent, his voice cracking, told us about the very special arrival we were about to witness. Our inbound plane from Oakland was carrying the remains of an American airman, Colonel Roy Knight Jr., who was shot down in combat during the Vietnam War in 1967. The agent took a long pause as he seemed to collect his words. Colonel Knight ejected from his aircraft. 
but no parachute was seen deploying, he explained. A search was undertaken, but could not find them. The agent, again, took a long pause before explaining that recently his remains were discovered, identified, and returned to the United States. Today, Colonel Knight is coming home to Dallas, said the agent, growing more emotional as he continued explaining what we were about to witness. At that point, we were told that before deploying, Colonel Knight had uh, said farewell to his family at this very airport. He waved goodbye to his five-year-old son. It would be the last time he would see any of them. By this point in the story, the terminal had fallen silent. TSA agents stood solemnly in a line near the gate. The gate agent held the microphone in his hands, taking a long pause and a deep breath. He struggled to say what came next. Today, the pilot of the plane bringing Colonel Knight home is his son. There were quiet gasps. A few people burst into tears. We were told that the aircraft would arrive in about 15 minutes. The crowd grew larger with noses pressed up uh, to the glass for a view of the gate. As Flight 1220 from Oakland taxied toward the jet bridge, two airport fire trucks provided a somber water salute while the ground crew stood in formation. We all watched silently as the flag-draped casket was unloaded from the cargo hold, met by what we could only assume to be Colonel Knight's family and a military guard. Airports rarely see moments of quiet, but for a few brief minutes, Dallas Love Field fell absolutely silent. There were no garbled announcements, no clickety-clack of rolling suitcases over the floor, no shouting over cell phones. Uh, people stood quietly at the window, wiping away tears, taking in a moment few rarely get to see. Okay, um, so it's starting to get to me, so let me play a little bit of audio um, that uh, Southwest Airlines actually put together. Uh, this is actually a video. We'll have a link to that. So you can watch the uh, the video, and this is only a, a, an excerpt from um, the audio from this video. At the end of the war, I remember as a kid watching every single POW come off those airplanes, and I watched every one of them. Your job and your duty as a family and as a child is to have hope. But as a kid, what you really think is if you don't do that, you're somehow going to be responsible for him being lost. As you probably noticed, a little bit of uh, activity going off on the right side of the aircraft. He's taking uh, one of our servicemen home to Dallas. 52 years in coming. This particular serviceman was lost. January of 1967, last time I saw my father, I was five years old. And that was at Love Field in Dallas, Texas. When I first got the call, you know, it was, it was almost surreal because I, I really didn't think it would ever happen. Wow, you know, he's really coming home. He's really, we're going to be able to bring him back. And we're going to have a place where we can honor him. Southwest 1220, we got a message for you. I'm ready, sir. So, on behalf of Regional Approach, we welcome your father, Colonel Knight, home. While he's gone, he will never be forgotten. It's uh, very touching, you know, everything that I've gotten from all the people in Southwest Airlines that have done so much to make this happen. It's, it's been overwhelming. The pilot that flew you in today was that same five-year-old boy who was left here at Love Field 52 years ago with his dad to say goodbye. The support and all that's happened, you know, it's just been phenomenal. I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of my company right now. I'm so proud of Southwest Airlines for what they've done to make this happen. Oh my gosh, thank you. Okay, again, that was uh, produced by 
Southwest Airlines and uh, a very, very touching story. And we'll have more information about um, Colonel Knight and uh, what happened to him in the uh, Vietnam War. And uh, that'll be all be in the show notes. That really tugs up the heartstrings, that, doesn't it, Jeff? What mm-hmm. an amazing story for his son to be able to fly him back to the point of his departure all those years later. Yep. Some stories, and I forget in life, and I'll be one of them for sure. That is for sure. Okay. Um, moving on to item B. Uh, an S7 Airlines. This is from the... Uh, what samchewy.com um a s7 boeing 737 almost ran out of runway during takeoff at moscow airport um let's see they were operating flight 263 from moscow Domodedovo. to that other airport that this uh U- ural uh, a321 was heading didn't quite make it almost ran out of fu- uh, runway during the takeoff after it overran the end of the runway 32 left the aircraft continued the scheduled flight and landed to Simferopol uh, two hours and 10 minutes later. A later runway inspection at Moscow's uh, Davo Airport found that five lighting units were destroyed during the takeoff with broken glass uh, scattered all around. After arriving in Simferopol, do you have a better way to pronounce that, Nick? Simferopol? That's not right. I, I, no, I don't. I always used to call it Smurf Pole, but that's <laughs> not how you're supposed to pronounce it. Okay. The 737 was submitted to an inspection that showed three tires had been damaged and the landing gear had glass embedded. The cause of the incident is not yet confirmed. Some Russian aviation websites report that the crew computed takeoff performance using a takeoff weight 15 tons below the real weight, um, 30,000 pounds ish. A little bit, uh, a little bit off. Another claims that the crew inadvertently entered zero fuel weight instead of the takeoff weight. The incident, which could have ended in tragedy for the 150 people on board, occurred early on Monday and was caught on the closed-circuit uh, TV cameras of the Demodedova. airport. And there's a, a video that uh, well, you'll see in the uh, show notes. Uh, I have a uh, still from the uh, the video. It looks like it's a video that someone's taken of the CCTV uh, screen. And did you guys get a chance to watch the video? Because it's an eye opener. It is. Is this the one where the guy sort of got the nose up and then just sat in the runway, and then he put the nose back down again, and then eventually got it back up a second time and staggered airborne? Well, I think he never lowered the nose again. I think that was another one that happened really? uh, months ago. Uh, this okay. one. This one, he kind of just kept it there and uh, same kind of an angle of attack or pitch angle. And, and then he goes right off the end of it. And then there's a point where you can see, I think the tires are actually uh, in the dirt or something. They're like making a trip. Yeah. You need, you need to watch that, uh, that, that little link there, that uh, uh, IMG 2489.trim movie. I will. So yeah. Yeah. yeah I you'll... watch it. And he throws, <laughs> he throws up a, he throws up a dust storm when I'm amazed at and looking at this, I mean, it's really hard to tell, but I don't see any sparks that his tail wasn't dragging with the deck angle that he had right. uh, of this aircraft wasn't dragging on the runway. Yeah, I, I don't see any sparks. That I it, didn't either. Yes. Even even when it was kind of throwing up the dirt um, off the end of the runway, I didn't see anything coming from the tail area. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> it was it was a very very close one for that flight. Uh, they barely 
made uh, got away with that. Well, I guess they really didn't get away, but they at least they didn't crash. So I'm sure that that will be investigated by the Rosa Fazia, uh, the Russian Aviation uh, Investigatory Agency. Um, oh yeah, he, he he's in the dirt, isn't he? Definitely. Are you watching it? <laughs> yeah, I just have. Wow, yeah, that's, that's like, a different one wow. from the one I saw because. Yeah. I was about to say, oh, uh, uh, that's the one where he, he probably forgot to put his flaps down and uh, mm -hmm. put his flaps down halfway, uh, you know, in, in this sort of <laughs> overrun. But no, this is quite a different one. So they're not having a good time, uh, the Russians at the moment, are they? No, they're not. Uh, no, what is it? Uh, three, three's a charm? Uh, that was uh, yeah. number two. Hopefully, uh, I don't know, maybe something else has happened we just don't know about. And uh, yeah. we can move on. Uh, oh, speaking of moving on, um, item D. Uh, our Norwegian Boeing 787 engine debris falls near uh, Fiumicino. Fiumicino? Is that the way you say that? I'm not Italian. Uh, Fiumicino. Uh, the airport of Rome, or one of Rome's airports. Um, a Norwegian Boeing 787 damaged cars and roofs in the vicinity of Rome's airport when they fell off the plane after its takeoff on Saturday the 10th of August. Um, now, it was a Boeing 787, but we have to also point out that the engine was a Rolls-Royce uh, Trent. What is it? A thousand? One thousand? Yeah. Not sure. But anyway, it's not the first time that they've had issues with uh, that engine. And yeah, um, there's there's a picture here of uh, a police car's uh, windscreen, I guess rear windshield, um, completely shattered and somebody holding a handful of shrapnel in their hand. And it is kind of a minor miracle that nobody got hit by one of these things and got taken out. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, to explain to the, to the listeners, uh, the Trent 1000 on the, uh, on the Dreamliners, uh, the, uh, the Rolls-Royce engine, has been suffering from excessive um, blade erosion and cracking. Uh, and as a result, uh, a number of the uh, aircraft have been granted for some time waiting for uh, modified and replacement engine parts uh, to make up for this mm -hmm. uh, problem they've encountered. Uh, and in the meantime, those engines that have been allowed to continue are supposed to be getting very regular boroscopes um, to ensure that the blades are fit to continue in flight. Now, that's a, a judgment call to a certain extent, and I know for a fact that uh, some of these aircraft, if you and I had seen those blades and that had been and declared fit, Jeff, we would probably be uh, <laughs> hanging up our flight bag and going, nah, I don't think I want to fly that one. Thank you very much. But <laughs> but the engineers uh, have, you know, been saying, well, they, they passed the test, so the aircraft's fit to go. But, of course, uh, we have had a few instances where those blades uh, have actually failed. And then what happens is when a blade fails is there's kind of a cascade because uh, the blade will move further back down the engine and it will the debris of the damaged blade that's come off will strike more blades and they will break free and they will strike more blades until you end up with half the engine being um, pooed out the back. Uh, you know, it's just a mess of, uh, of screaming hot um, metal. Uh, that then falls to the earth. Now it, it usually doesn't fall very fast because they're, you know, they're they're not huge chunks of metal. They're they're very quite little blades. You can see from the picture that they're only a few inches across. 
uh, but they are extremely hot, mm -hmm. and they're certainly coming down with enough force to uh, break windows and things. So, uh, yeah, they, they could definitely cause injury and possibly even death. So when you get a shower of these blades coming out of an airliner, uh, and it's not, of course, just this engine or just this aircraft that has suffered this problem over the years. Many aircraft mm -hmm. have had uh, multiple blade failures that have showered to the ground. This one is dramatic because it happened uh, right over a car park with lots of people and there was a fair amount of damage done. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just glad nobody was injured. And uh, it does say that, uh, according to Air Fleets, that this particular um, Dreamliner was... Well, yeah, I mean, you, you've heard of the... Theory that if you throw a penny from the Empire State Building, it'll kill someone. Well, that's absolutely not true. If the if the debris is light enough, it, it falls at a at its terminal velocity, and if that velocity isn't very high, then it won't do a lot of damage. So that's all I'm saying. Okay, I was gonna say because I, I don't care how slowly that metal falls. It, if it hits human beings, uh, the soft flesh of human beings, it's going to do do some. Some, some significant damage, if not kill somebody. Yeah, it might. Uh, but on the other hand, the smaller bits won't. It depends which bit hits you, I guess. Bits is bits. Bit, bit, d bit. I do pro uh, apologize. Apparently, I was I was saying something, and all of a sudden, I hear you guys having some kind of discussion about pennies falling from buildings. I went, what? Where did that come from? <laughs> so yes. we, we were having a religious discussion again, Jeff. Pennies from heaven? Yes. Um, yeah, I don't know what's going on here. Uh, we might have to reconsider this platform. <laughs> you do know how copper wire was invented, correct? Yes. Two pilots uh, were arguing, uh, trying to pry a, a penny uh, from each other. That's correct. Yeah. Bam. Here we go. Uh, yeah, here we go. Okay. Hey. I um, think the old adage is two L-1011 captains fighting over a penny. On the other hand, did I ever tell you the story about this uh, L-1011 captain that um, a good friend of mine used to fly with all the time? And apparently he um, uh, lived down in Miami and owned a, a high-end uh, bicycle shop with uh, campy uh, components and you know all the fancy Italian um, lightweight frames and all that kind of stuff. And apparently was doing pretty well for himself with the, the business and... Flying airplanes was just kind of a hobby for him, and uh, nobody quite understood exactly what that meant until on one particular trip, my friend Ken said that the captain knocked over his flight kit, and out from his flight kit spilled probably a dozen or two orange envelopes, uh, and that was back in the day before we had direct deposit, and the envelopes uh, had checks in there every, you know, bi-monthly. And so he said that there, there was at least, I don't know, at least six months worth of, of checks that had spilled from unopened, by the way, unopened orange envelopes. Uh, and that's when he realized that, yeah, this is really truly just a hobby for this captain because he wasn't even <laughs> cashing his checks. And that was back in the day, yeah. the L-1011 captains made a lot of money. Lot of money, <laughs> and, and, if, and if people don't know, the orange envelope was synonymous with Acme. Uh, through all the departments, we'd all wait for that uh, that uh, tray of envelopes come in every first uh, and fifteenth of the month, or th uh, no, fifteenth and thirtieth of the month. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, for years, actually, I think I still have a few of those envelopes 
in my house. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's how our paychecks used to come. Yeah. And for the longest time, they, they still came that way, but they weren't um, actual checks in there. They were just kind of like records of what was deposited in your, you know, direct deposit account. Um, yeah. So those, those days are pretty much over now, I guess. I, I would imagine that you could probably still get, no, you probably can't. You probably say, no, 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 the only way you're going to get paid is if you, you know, we have a direct link to your bank account. Anyway, that kind of blew me away that, uh, that would have been, that would have been a heck of a lot of money that the guy had in his flight kit that he hadn't bothered to, uh, cash. All right. Um, item E meet the first female Marine assigned to fly the F 35 C. First Lieutenant Catherine Stark is the first female Marine to be assigned to the Navy's F-35C plate or fleet replacement squadron, FRS. Uh, Erie, Pennsylvania native First Lieutenant Catherine Stark earned her wings Friday at a ceremony in Kingsville, Texas, and in doing so became the first female Marine to be assigned to the U.S. Navy's F-35C fleet replacement squadron. The F-35 Lightning II, designed and built by Lockheed Martin, is a fifth-generation fighter designed to replace the F-18 in the Navy and Marine Corps, and the F-22 and the U.S. Air Force. I didn't know that. I thought they were going to work together, but okay. Of the three models, the F-35C is designed specifically to take off and land on aircraft carriers. And uh, talks a little bit about um, First Lieutenant Stark, um, and uh, they kind of interview her dad. He said, it's incredible. She's just an amazing girl. She's got all areas covered. And... Uh, Anyway, um, up until now, they were only taking F-18 pilots that were already out in the fleet, someone with a lot of experience, and they were sending them back to school for six months and then transitioning them to the F-35, she said Tuesday during a telephone interview. But recently, they've been picking people right out of flight school. That's been the special thing. Up until now, people fresh out of flight school with no fleet experience, like myself. I haven't been to a squadron yet because I just finished flight school. We didn't have the opportunity to select the F-35. Anyway, um, very interesting little um, uh, interview of First Lieutenant Stark. And uh, at some point here, she kind of basically downplays the whole thing. And she goes, you know, I really don't know what the big deal is. <laughs> but she must be an awfully good uh, pilot to have made the grade to fly the F-35C, I would think. So she's probably just me modest. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm sure they uh, picked the best for the job, and I'm sure she's the best pilot they've got. All right, and finally. United Airlines now tells their pilots, no drinking for 12 hours before your shift starts. One week after two pilots were arrested in Scotland for failing an alcohol breath test before operating a flight, UA has tightened rules for when pilots must stop drinking before they report to duty, according to a new bulletin. The airline's pilots now must make or take their final sip of alcohol 12 hours before their pre-departure duty period begins. Now, that's kind of worded uh, interestingly. Um, I, I don't think they're required to take a sip of alcohol 12 minutes prior. I mean, 12 hours prior. <laughs> but if they happen to be drinking, they have to stop at that point, right? Um, like, what if you don't drink? You're still forced to... Uh, yeah, you sleep. have to. Everyone has to have some alcohol 12 hours before they fly. Yeah, because it says they're right compulsory. there. Yeah, the airline pilots now must take their final sip 12 hours before their pre departure duty. Absolutely. Anyway, um, before Saturday, pilots were allowed eight hours from their final drink to the start of their work period. 
a period the industry calls bottle to throttle. This policy is being changed to help assure pilot compliance with standards established by the United States and individual states where United operates around the world. United's policy is now more stringent than required by the Federal Aviation Administration, which has an eight-hour bottle-to-throttle mandate and a 0.4% limit for, wouldn't that be 0.04%? Not sure. Maybe 0.4 is right. For blood alcohol concentration. I wish Steph were here right now. She could tell. Us. Yeah, she's the drunkard. She knows yeah, all these the, things. <laughs> she knows all about drinking. I think it's 0.04. <laughs> That's what I thought. I, 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 I think it's doesn't pretty sure it's so far. Yeah, that seems like a high percent to me, 0.4. Uh, maybe not. Um, anyway, United's three major competitors, American Airlines, Delta Airlines, and Southwest Airlines, all continue to follow the FAA guidelines of eight hours between the last sip and when pilots report for duty. Um, and uh, let's see, Christian Bass, uh, he's a producer. Um, he said, could this be the end of mid-trip meetups? Um, I don't know. I don't think so. Um, you know, it's not like when we have a meetup in the middle of a trip, Christian, that we, uh, you know, really tie one on. You know, we'll have one or two beers and that's pretty much it. Because I think we're pretty careful about uh, what we consume while we're in the middle of a trip. Uh, because we don't want to expose ourselves to uh, to the, the scrutiny, uh, unnecessary scrutiny of the TSA and any other uh, authorities, uh, and, you know, draw attention to ourselves and, uh, get in trouble for having a, uh, too high level of alcohol in our bloodstream. Um, I do know that, um, Acme airlines, uh, years ago before I was hired, um, had a 24 hour, uh, rule, I believe, uh, which, uh, essentially took out every pilot and every trip, except for maybe the the really long haul trips where you have more than a 24 hour layover. Um, and, um, when I was asking my friend Ken, um, cause his dad was, uh, flying for Acme at the time, I said, um, uh, did that. And I, I heard from a lot of the captains back then, uh, regarding this rule. Cause we were going, what, how, how can you do that? And he goes, well, kind of interesting. You'd uh, end up going down to the bar and <laughs> you'd see somebody kind of in the corner somewhere trying to be, you know, inconspicuous drinking a beer and, uh, and then they kind of look over at you and you kind of just shake your, you know, like nod your head and <laughs> enjoy your, your soda pop, your adult beverage. Uh, this is what all hearsay, of course. I don't, I wasn't involved in any of this because this is all before I was hired, uh, more than 30 years ago. Uh, but, uh, any, uh, any stories or, um, you know, anecdotes, uh, Nick that you can, well, uh, yeah, I can tell some of my, uh, it's 25 years ago now, but I do remember that, um, uh, I was doing one of my first, what you would call, uh, IOT. Is that right? Initial um, operating experience. IOE. IOE. Yeah. So this was basically a lot of my line training sectors and it was one of the first and I was with one of the real old hands. Um, and, uh, we had 24 hours in JFK and we were due to get airborne that evening. And uh, the skipper and my training captain said, uh, oh, I'll uh, see you in uh, TGI's, Nick. We'll, uh, we'll have a bite to eat, and um, then we'll get a few hours sleep and go home. So uh, we pitched up, and there he was with a beer. And I was thinking to myself, well, we're checking out at five, and uh, that's interesting. <laughs> so uh, and we, we all had a beer. And then and a hamburger, and then we went to bed for a few hours and got up and flew home. 
and I've got a lot worse stories, but I don't want to implicate people, so it's a bit unfair of me. But um, the company I flew for had some fairly strict guidelines, and don't forget, everybody has a different metabolism. So you can uh, have one bloke who could probably drink eight hours before flying, and uh, his body would process that alcohol and he would have zero in his bloodstream in eight hours' time. But you might get someone else uh, who could drink 14 hours before flying and still have a significant amount left. It depends entirely upon the individual, the amount that they're used to drinking, how well their body operates, how efficient their liver is, et cetera, et cetera. If Steph were here, she'd give us all those variables. So 12 hours is just a guideline. It's not a it's not a, if you don't drink 12 hours before flying, you'll be fine. It's, it doesn't work that way. So you also have to bear in mind that not only do you not drink 12 hours before flying, you have to be able to pass a breathalyzer or blood alcohol test. Uh, and that is actually the meter to which we're all measured. Um, so my airline had a rule that said uh, moderate drinking only 24 hours before flying, no drinking at all 12 hours. And it made the point that this is only a guideline and it's up to the individual to ensure they pitch up to work with zero alcohol in their body. A very good point. You know, the, um, the, uh, Northwest airlines captain that got, got busted in cup uh, flying in from Fargo into Minneapolis, uh, was, um, I, he was at a layover in Fargo and he did stop drinking eight hours or maybe a little bit more before their sign in in the morning. However, he consumed a huge amount of alcohol, like 19 rum and Cokes. Um, oh, wow. So, yeah, that's where they oh. get you, right? Uh, it's not only yep. the time, it's also what you actually have in your bloodstream. And uh, James uh, in our chat room says, we have a 12-hour rule, but it's still your responsibility to be stone-cold sober by the time you report for your next flight. So Absolutely. it pretty much means you can only have one beer when you're having dinner. Although, as Nick mentioned, it depends on everybody's metabolism, how efficient the livers are and that kind of thing. But um, And some states, uh, or some uh, world states, uh, the tolerance is like, you know, the amount in your bloodstream is like zero, completely nothing, nada. Uh, other places, they have a little bit more of a margin. Uh, you, they may allow like up to 0 0.04. Uh, as oh, yes. Steph just mentioned in the... Uh, chat room she's listening uh, that uh, it was not 0.4 it was 0 0.04 so that was a an error in this article yeah and of course in some countries in the world which you have to be very careful of if you're an international pilot the uh, law will um be so severe if you're caught that you could well be slammed in to prison for many years for trying to pitch up for work uh, and breaking that alcohol limit so while some countries may be relatively benevolent, others will throw the book at you and you can have a big problem. You might be in, uh, in jail for many years. So mm. you really, and it's the laws of that land, not the laws of the country you come from, that matter. So you have to be really careful. Right. Oh, yeah, by the it, way, I used to like the what rule, sorry, Dana, I used to like the rule that said uh, you're not allowed to drink within 50 feet of uh, the aircraft. You're not allowed to smoke within eight hours. That's to what fly. I thought that the rule was, was, honestly. Much better rule. Yeah. <laughs> it was a lot easier to comply with that. Yep. I, I like that. Hey, hey, Nick, I, I like that idea, too. And, and, you know, unfortunately, people don't have a whole lot of common sense when it comes to uh, 
this topic and and they keep on pushing the limits and and it keeps on making it worse for all of us that are actually out here being responsible as they always say it's a few that res- that that ruin it for the it's a few dumb masses that ruin it for the masses if you know i get if you get my drift oh absolutely um, and you know one of the things that concerns me is you know in the morning i like to use mouthwash that can actually come back as a positive test on a on a BAC, on a breathalyzer. Not yeah, a BAC, but, it, but a breathalyzer. It won't be in your bloodstream, though. So although you might blow uh, a, an illegal limit, as soon as they take a blood test, you'll be cleared. So Yeah, and I wouldn't yeah. insist on a, taking a blood test if that were the case. Yeah, yeah I, I would I would as well. But, you know, that's something maybe Dr. Seth would know for sure. But, you know, I, I don't – and when I say in the morning, you know, usually at least – plan an hour before and i take a little bit of my and of uh, listerine just because you know i i want to have that clean mouth it's not because i'm drinking so but our our company is zero percent and we can have zero nothing not a not a zilch and you know the uh yeah we're, we're zero hmm. there's no tolerance okay um didn't know that i'm pretty sure I'll, i can i've got my ipad right here i'll look it up okay but anyways um I've always been responsible. I'm, you know, I follow that twelve-hour rule pretty religiously. So, uh, it, it's just not worth it. And in moderation is absolutely correct. You, you know, on an overnight, you're not out here to party. You're out here to be responsible. And the next morning, you have to be responsible when you show up to work. Speak for yourself. Thank um, you. <laughs> and uh, I like you. I'm irresponsible. Come on now. I, um, the, uh, the... <laughs> Sorry. Are we finished. <laughs> I like to uh, take a swig of WD-40 before I show up for work in the morning. Just well, that's really good for you. That keep stuff, everything yeah. kind of uh, oils the joints. Yeah. <laughs> All right, that's it for news this week. Which means now, one of the most favorite parts of the show. Oops, not that one. This one. Your feedback, Captain. Incoming message. All right, let's start with item number one, Matthias. Uh, my name is Matthias. I'm a German citizen living in Northwest Indiana for over two years. Dispatched to our branch in the U.S. as a technician. I haven't they caught him yet? <laughs> Apparently not. He's still on the loose. <laughs> Damn. I have no route to aviation, but my dad was a captain traveling the oceans. But I have my own ADSB receiver since 2015 feeding FlightAware and also Flight Radar 24. Very cool. Thank you very much for your volunteer work to uh, supply those two great websites with your ADSB information, Matthias. Uh, the trip I'm writing about happened in between July 17th and July 19th. Um, and please see the attachment. Always happy landings and don't forget to always have enough coal. <laughs> I think that's funny, personally. <laughs> okay, moving on. Um, hi, APG crew. I wanted to share my latest trip, which should have been taking me back to Chicago, O'Hare, which usually takes two and a half hours from Dallas-Fort Worth. Prologue. On Monday, we received a request to do a demonstration of our solution we're selling. I started looking for flights, hotels, and a rental, booked everything for Wednesday, and calculated enough time to be back on Thursday late evening. I booked on Acme Chicago um, Wednesday, I, and that is not our 
uh, Dana and my acne. It's a different, I guess, what do we call that? Ajax, I think. Wednesday, I loaded everything I needed in my car, drove one hour to O'Hare, parked my car, got on the shuttle, dropped my Pelican case at Acme Chicago, went through TSA, uh, pre, oh, pre-TSA for the win, and off to the gate. Flight to DFW was delayed by an hour, but the captain managed to get 20 minutes back. Picked up my car, drove two hours to Tyler, Texas, dropped my stuff at the hotel, had a quick bite, crashed on the bed with some TV. Until now, everything was okay. Here we go. It's getting warm. I woke up at 3 a.m., sweating. Bed was damp. The air in my room was warmer than the outside. Air conditioning gave up the ghost, only making a funny, unhealthy hum from the seized compressor every minute. Night shift assigned me a new room on the same floor, and after an hour, the room was cool enough to switch off the AC, which sounded like a CFM 56 at idle, and get a few hours of sleep. After my meeting, I drove back to DFW, dropped the car off, and walked over to the bus to take me back to the airport. They have a big info screen at the bus terminal, and I was looking for my flight, which is 713, which didn't show up. So I pulled up my phone and was greeted with a nice red exclamation mark for my flight. Uh, informing me that my flight was delayed by four hours and offered uh, me to rebook on an earlier flight. Since it was still an hour to depart, I rebooked, giving me enough time to drop my stuff, security, and something to eat. That was the plan. Immediately after I rebooked on 614, I got another message that this flight was also delayed by four hours. Well, okay, that's unfortunate, but will match my arrival more or less the same time as I booked before. At the airport, after I had something to eat, After walking 10 minutes to Dickie's looking for a healthy uh, pulled pork sandwich, which was declined because of a broken credit card terminal, I arrived at the gate. Departure was already shifted to 7 p.m. from 2.30. Did I mention that I got a text from Acme Chicago after waiting at the gate that my original flight was back on schedule? (laughs) Acme Chicago at the gate gave us more or less informed, or kept us more or less informed, but a few passengers got a bit unhappy after the announcement that the part they flew in for the broken A319 didn't fix the problem, but they still tried to get it fixed, and also the cabin crew ran out of time, and they had to bring in another crew on the next flight from Chicago. In other news, O'Hare had bad weather, resulting into a ground stop. You know what it means, and finally they canceled a flight where some packs are booked on to another destination but had to switch at Chicago O'Hare. The mood of some wasn't happy at that moment. I think they finally decided to scrap the unfixable Airbus, assigning us to another gate. Departure now, 9.38, which was shifted constantly by half an hour. At 8 o'clock, I entered the bar at the gate and had some beer. Departure was shifted to 12.11 a.m. After wandering around for some food, I arrived back at the gate, and 30 minutes later, we applauded the passengers deplaning the delayed flight from Chicago O'Hare, which would us fly back to O'Hare. Finally, 30 minutes passed by, and at the 45 minutes mark, we got the announcement that the flight crew ran out of time, unbeknownst by anyone. Since Acme Chicago has only six gates at Dallas-Fort Worth, oh, that must be United then. They also don't have the resources available as they do in Chicago O'Hare. They also said to hopefully have a crew available and have a solution in the next 45 minutes max. Very unhappy passengers at the gate, and some people started looking for hotels. Could it get worse? Sure. After 45 minutes, Acme, uh, let's see. After 45 minutes, Acme Chicago decided to move the flight to next morning, bringing in a crew overnight and also looking for hotels. 
The mood switched to very unhappy. 20 minutes later, someone from Dallas-Fort Worth grabbed the microphone, telling us that they are still trying to get some hotel rooms, but Acme Fort Worth has a block in the hotels, making it impossible for Acme Chicago to book the same hotels. That was the moment I thought that the passengers would burn down the gate to a crisp. Uh, A bit of relief came up after they told us that they have 30 rooms and we were expected to give them to, or they were expected to give them to elderly and families with kids. I got a voucher and after a 20-minute bus drive, we arrived, booked in, and I just crashed on the bed at 2.15 in the morning. Bus will take us back at 7.30. After three hours of sleep and a shower, I felt a bit refreshed. Do you know this feeling? You can move worlds and five minutes later you struggled to put on your socks. <laughs> That's how I felt. I arrived back at the gate, had a nice chat with some other passengers, which I talked to the day and night before when Acme Chicago prepared some snacks and water. We knew that something is not quite right. And sure it was. We received the announcement that they plan to get us out of DFW in time, but they haven't heard from the crew so far. I spotted the crew 20 minutes later and we boarded the plane and made it back to Chicago with a delay of 18 hours and 55 minutes. Traffic on a Friday afternoon in Chicago is brutal and I finally made it home after a two-hour drive. Arrived home feeling like someone pushed me through a meat grinder, but happy to be back. While the announcement, (laughs) the title, the heading for this paragraph, generous compensation. While the announcement the night before Acme Chicago told us to be generously comp. They told us that we were going to be generously compensated for all the mess and delay. Well, I received it over the weekend on my company's mail. A whopping $14. (laughs) Are you trying to be funny, Acme Chicago? (laughs) 14 bucks. $14. Yeah, that's a little less than a dollar an hour. Yeah, that was a little rude, wasn't it? Yeah. It's a complete slap in the face. Yeah. It is. Yeah, you'd rather they didn't bother than yeah. try and do something so dismal. <laughs> just like take everything off the board, pretend like you never had the flights to begin with, and just leave. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing with us, Matthias. <laughs> um, yeah, Matthias, that was just like uh, every um, party I've been to uh, in the last 25 years. As soon as someone finds out you're an airline pilot. <laughs> yeah, let me tell you. Yeah, about my story. Right. <laughs> Let me tell you about my my dog that I was uh, carrying with me in the in the under in the cargo hold and what they did with my dog. Well, okay, well, I wait, wait a minute. What, what's what's the famous first question everybody asks once asks once they find out you're a pilot? Um, I don't know. Uh, what route do you fly? Oh yeah, what route do you fly? Yeah, yeah. What route are you on? Yeah, something to accent. Next questions can you get me cheap flights. <laughs> Yeah, so I have these things called buddy passes. Let me give them to you. Good luck. Yeah, I only never... give, them, give, them, give them to people I don't like. Yeah, you'll never, you'll never want to talk to me again. <laughs> exactly. Oh, boy. So can I, I raise our accuracy rating up uh, to 100%? Oh, do we? Okay. It is, it is, it is uh, pilots will report with no alcohol in their system. So it is okay. indeed 0.0. There you go. Our company. Very good. Well, thank you. No, 100%. All right. No more drinking for me, I guess. None. Um, I'm going to drink as much as I can. Ah, shut up. <laughs> yeah, no more mid-trip uh, meetups. <laughs> hey, hey, Nick, I guess you'll be Ubering around or lifting or taxiing around then. Oh, uh, yeah, of course. Well, no, I, I, I drink uh, when I can use public transport, of course. There you go. And public um, commodes. 
Item two. Um, Osh, Kosh, wrap up and two questions. Two, count them for Dana. Woo-hoo. Greetings, APG community. Just wanted to drop, this is from Kelly Kirk. Just wanted to drop a short thank you for the great meetup on Friday, July 26th. I met so many great people, I can't mention them all, but I want to single out Glenn, Glenn Taller, for breaking the ice and introducing, introducing me to several people. And I also want to thank Dave, Dave Abbey, I'm guessing, as well. He pointed out who was who and also introduced me to RH from Opposing Bases. I'm not really comfortable in crowds and they made me feel welcome. Unfortunately, I could only come on Friday. Hopefully the next time you all go to Oshkosh, I'll be able to stay uh, for the whole week. My questions for Dana. First, as a CFI, what is your opinion of accelerated flight training, specifically instrument? The training time uh, I have available is very limited, and it appears that this will be my best chance to finish my rating. Secondly, what do you think about the Piper Warrior as a training platform? A training platform. Uh, What do you think about the Piper Warrior as a training platform? All of my training and experience thus far has been in the Cessna 152, 172, and 7 hours in a 182RG. The school I'm looking at has a 172RG and a Warrior. I have a little more than 10 hours instrument time, and the bulk is in the 172. Thanks again for the podcast. Clear skies and tailwinds. Kelly Kirk. All right, Dana, you're on. Hey, Kelly. Um, as far as I'm concerned, uh, flying any of those airplanes are all pieces of junk. No, I'm, I'm really only kidding. Um, Kelly, uh, you know, it's, it comes down to personal preference, Boeing, Airbus, uh, you know, McDonnell Douglas, coal, coal carrier. Um, uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, my personal favorite uh, for a training platform would be the Piper Warrior. I find it to be a much more stable aircraft, especially for instrument uh, flying. Uh, 172 uh, tends to be a little more uh, less stable. Not that they're either one of the aircraft are particularly unstable, um, but uh, just a, a preference whether you like a high wing or a low wing. Uh, and it's just uh, you know, if you like to drive a Dodge, Dodge, or you like to drive a, a Ford or a Chevy. That's what it comes down to, because the ultimate end goal is exactly what you're trying to ask. Uh, the other question, uh, should you do a, an accelerated course, and what my, my opinion is on that. Uh, the law of recency uh, is a big one in my book, and that would be the more that you can put your hands on the product and become more familiar with it and uh, use it more uh, uh, more frequently and all the time, the better it's going to stick in your mind. Uh, especially when it comes to instrument training. Um, so people that tend to uh, not go into an accelerated program, tend to, it tends to cost them more money. It takes a lot longer to um, get through the program. Um, so I don't think there is a disadvantage to it because you're just learning everything at a, at a much higher rate uh, as long as you're able to absorb it. Uh, that might be the only thing. Um, that I would say on the downside, and also, can you afford it? And uh, you know, can you take the time off from work to do it? Uh, those are the questions that I would have for you. And if all of those questions are yes, then I would I would highly recommend it. I often have talked about uh, a program called All ATPs, um, and I'm in, in myself nor the airline pilot are, are endorsing them in any way. Uh, but they are an accelerated program that you go through, and within. I think it's 18 months, you're a flight instructor, and you're out there flying and building that uh, critical time. 
So the, the faster that you can get through the training and the, um, uh, the, the, uh, quicker you'll be able to, if you're looking to go into your line business, and I don't see that you really say that here. Um, but if you, if your goal is to be going to your line business as a pilot and, or going to corporate or just fly for a living, uh, the faster you can build your time, the better off you'll be. Very good. Anything else to add? Oh, and by the way, Kelly, it was, it was also very nice to meet you. And, um, oh, wait, I left on Friday, didn't I? Yeah, I didn't get to meet you, Kelly. I don't oh, think you weren't there Kelly. for the, uh, the pub quiz? No, I was not. That's right. You left uh, before that started. You left around, what, 7.30, 8 o'clock? Yeah, because mm-hmm. I need to get home for uh, my friend's going away party on Saturday. Oh, yeah. All right. Very good. Well, I'm glad that you were here. We started to cover this uh, question, uh, these questions last week, Dana. Uh, but uh, yeah, then uh, uh, Steph said, yeah, probably be best for Dana to answer them since he's asking you anyway. All right. Um, uh, and I hope, and I hope that answers them. You know, I hope that's a good answer for you, Kelly. If you have any, any more questions, please, uh, you know, don't hesitate to contact me. Um, and on the airline pilot guy, uh, website and, and, and send it directly to me and I'll be happy to respond to you. Very good. Item three. Captain Jeff, this is from Jay from PA. Sorry that I missed you and your crew at Oshkosh. It was such a great week. I've been a longtime listener of your podcast and truly appreciate all the hard work you put into making such a fantastic podcast. Is there any chance that Dr. Steph flew into Oshkosh? My son and I took off from Barabu or uh, I'm sad, I was trying to make it sound like an Australian, but that's a, apparently something in Wisconsin. Baraboo, Wisconsin, Dells, Wisconsin, on Wednesday morning, and I swear I heard her departing on the Unicom. Perhaps it's just my recurrent base or case of APG syndrome flaring up yet again. <laughs> well, let me tell you. Uh, I believe that Stephanie was flying that morning, Wednesday morning. Uh, she wasn't, well, she did leave. To, so that she could come back and fly the Fisk arrival and fly the pattern in um, Mike's, um, uh, what do we call it? A, um, uh, Musketeer. Uh, Musketeer, yeah. But I, uh, Beechcraft, there we go. <laughs> Sorry, people, I'm not feeling very well. Beechcraft Musketeer that uh, he owns part of. And uh, I believe it was Steph and Mike and RH from Opposing Bases and um, Jennifer, Jennifer were the occupants of said vehicle and you are not hearing things. I'm pretty sure. Um, Oh, wait a minute. Thursday. And he, she didn't talk. Oh, never mind. <laughs> False alarm. That was not her. <laughs> it must be then the APG syndrome flaring up yet again. My bad. I thought it was Wednesday, but um, Stephanie now in the chat room is saying Thursday and she didn't talk on the radio. Oh, well, never mind. Uh, let's continue with his feedback. Here is the YouTube link to the Apollo astronaut presentation at the Theater in the Woods in Oshkosh last Friday evening. The first hour is the discussion on the research and development that went into the lunar lander. Scroll to the one-hour mark to see Apollo 9 astronaut Joe Engel and Apollo 11 astronaut Mike Collins share some amazing stories. My two favorites are the story of how Joe Engel rolled the X-15 rocket plane and the story of the polar bears during Mike Collins' astronaut candidate flight physical. Amazing stuff. And then he gave us a YouTube link for us to watch. 
And he says, thanks again, Blue Skies and Tailwinds. Jay from PA, which is Pennsylvania. Uh, item four. Robert from Marietta, Georgia, or I like to say Mayretta. He sent us a snapshot of an article in American Airlines in-flight magazine. And shall I read this? I think absolutely. absolutely. It was, it was, it's a great, great article. Okay. So the, the person or thing or whatever, um, that wrote this article in their magazine, American way is actually an airplane, a McDonnell Douglas mad dog. You may not know me that well, but if you fly American airlines a lot, chances are we've met. My name is mad dog. Okay. It's more of a nickname, really short for McDonnell Douglas MD 80. My parents like to say I was a super 80. I couldn't agree more. You're probably wondering why an airplane is writing a magazine article. Well, for starters, we have a lot of downtime at night. But the main reason is I'm calling it a career. On September 4th, I'll retire to Roswell, New Mexico, making way for some youngsters from Airbus and Boeing. My remaining siblings, about two dozen MD-80s and all, will also shine up their polished aluminum that day for one final flight into the sunset. Leaving the rest of the fleet behind with its fancy satellite Wi-Fi, bigger overhead bins, in-seat power, is bittersweet. The end of a journey that began in 1983. Throughout the decade, we helped launch America's Americans' hub and spoke system as the airline's workhorse. More than 350 of us filled the sky for American when we merged with TWA in 2001. And though we only flew domestically, we connected the biggest cities in the country, making meetings and memories for millions of customers. Uh, let's see. In doing so, we made our presence known. Many of you loved the signature growl of our engines. Others liked the peaceful calm up front. None more than our pilots. To all of them for pointing us in the right direction. To the flight attendants who walked our aisles, caring for customers. To the mechanics who kept these old dogs feeling like young pups. And to the thousands of other team members who welcomed us to the gate, loaded bags and cargo, or simply came along for the ride. Thanks for the memories from the bottom of our hydraulic hearts. Of course, without customers, we're never born. You're the reason why we keep flying, or you're the reason we kept flying, and why we can park for the final time with our tails held high. So on behalf of, of Americans, 130,000 team members, our entire fleet, and particularly my fellow retirees, I tip my wing. Thank you for flying with us for the last 36 years. In the words of my favorite 80s tune, I've had the time of my life. And I owe it all to you, Mad Dog. Very cool. I thought that was Very fantastic. Nice. Me too. Now I want to be yes. at thirty. I want to retire at thirty-six years. Yeah, that would be nice. That would be nice. I was. Uh, we were flying a uh, ninety today, Dana, and it says on the uh, all the paperwork, Boeing MD ninety, and it had the uh, the registration and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think it was like twenty ten or twenty eleven. I'm thinking, yeah, no, it's not, no. was not made then. That's when it was reissued when Boeing, I guess, took over uh, the responsibility of the uh, Mad Dog fleet or that particular MD-90. And so I'm thinking, well, at least on the little metal plate on the uh, the door frame when you walk in, that will probably have the original information. But it didn't. I looked at it and it still said Boeing in 2010 or 2011. So I did a quick search on the phone for tail number November 923. Uh, Delta November, and it was actually born January 3rd, 1998. 
So it's 21 and a half years, not eight years. But and, you, know, you know, Boeing's like a bad dog that wants to go mock every, every fire hydrant, even though it doesn't <laughs> own the fire hydrant, right? I just, yeah. I almost want to have a little little substance in my mouth that kind of regurgitated thinking <laughs> about that the Boeing ever can claim any rely any, in any way uh, say that they have ever invented the McDonnell Douglas product and how awesome and reliable it's been throughout all these years. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, yeah, yeah. it's irritating to me. I was going to say, oh, yeah. And, and by the way, uh, so people that listen to the podcast that may not know, we don't have an MCAT system on the Mad Dog, even though it's made by Boeing. So it's perfectly safe to get on airplanes. Well, there are a lot of Boeing airplanes that don't have MCAS. Uh, only one, actually. Uh, the making a joke out of it. 737 yeah. Max. I'd just like to say that I'm every sorry. time my dogs hold their tails high, I know what they're about <laughs> to do. Yeah, true. <laughs> Very good point. Uh, this is not good. Breaking news. I'll put in the real news sounder. Uh, this, no, no uh, you won't. I will. Um, this is from <laughs> okay. uh, Stephen Ivey. Hat tip to Stephen Ivey. Thank you, Steph. Uh, Dale Earnhardt Jr. and family survive fiery plane crash in Tennessee. The NASCAR legend, his wife and daughter, were on board a plane that crashed in Tennessee. His sister says no one was seriously injured, which is amazing when you see the pictures. <laughs> I guess they must have evacuated the airplane before it just started burning down to a uh, to a pulp or whatever. Uh, it was at Elizabethton Municipal Airport in Tennessee. Um, the Carter County Sheriff's Office confirmed to NBC affiliate WCYB that the couple were on the plane, crashed at Elizabethton Municipal Airport. The FAA said that a Cessna citation rolled off the end of the runway and caught fire after landing at about 3.40 p.m. local time. So that would have been only, what, a couple of hours ago? Not even that? Hey, another runway overrun? Yep. Another oh, one. Those runways, they're really not big enough, are they? No, apparently not. Hmm. Well, I'm sure we'll, we'll be discussing more of this in a future episode, but we just thought we'd throw that out there. And again, thank oh, you, Stephen. I'm glad that everyone got out all right. That's yeah. the important bit. Me too. Okay. Um, continuing with the feedback. Oh, this is a good one. Greg writes in. Greg Rule, El Presidente of Rudy Project Sunglasses and Helmets. Uh, let's see, he's in Australia. Uh, was just looking at a captain of a Jetstar Airlines do a walk around his plane. It didn't look like he was really looking at anything. Out for a Sunday stroll by the looks of it. How would you guys do a walk around? Love your show, by the way. Gee. Um, so, who'd like I'm to a start? captain, I don't. <laughs> no, I'm sure you no. do. I actually, I do every every uh, time it's the FO's leg, mm-hmm. with uh, only a very few exceptions since I've upgraded to captain. I've always done their walk, their walk around when it's their time to fly. Now, I think it's it's important to point out. Now, you know, I guess there are some extremes here. Um, the the walk around that we are to do is not the same as a maintenance technician uh, going out and taking panels off and checking cables and pulleys and well i know you guys don't have that kind of stuff on uh, airbuses but 
You know what I mean? It's not a, a Oh, super... we can wiggle the connections and check the circuit boards. <laughs> Take the voltmeter out and make yeah, sure you got exactly a good right. uh, drop in whatever. Why not? Um, you, can, you can drop some water on the on the uh, circuit board, see if it sparks yeah. up. Yeah, we spit, actually, because we're <laughs> yeah. men. <laughs> but so, you know, there's, that's one end of the spectrum extreme. And then there's the other end of the spectrum where you, a guy goes out there. I remember this guy that uh, was on the 727. He was a flight engineer. And he said he was going out for the walk around. And I swear, I don't think you could have, I don't think you could have gone down the jetway stairs, ran around the airplane and come up the stairs that fast. And he was like already back. And I'm like, I don't think he actually did a walk around, <laughs> which to me is just unfathomable because that would be the time that there would be a big, huge panel hanging on one of the engines or something terrible, you know, hanging off the airplane or something really, truly unsafe. If I were to like completely blow off a, uh, a walk around inspection, I think most people do not do that. Uh, I think um, um, like 99.99999% of uh, pilots do actually do walk arounds, but there are times when I see people going around and it, it does appear that they're really not paying attention to the airplane itself. They're just kind of walking around, looking around. And so that's probably the other extreme of uh, a walk around. But I think that most of us, and I think that both Nick and Dana would agree with me that most pilots when they do a walk around they kind of it's like a combination of the two they, they, there's some middle ground where you know you you are looking at important things like hydraulic leaks and uh condition of brakes and and tires and um you know the thrust reverser uh buckets you know uh, on our airplane dana would agree that you know we look to see if they have any scrape marks on them because if they do then you want to make sure that you let somebody know that it wasn't you that did it <laughs> um and uh, that sort of thing uh, what do you have to add, guys? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I um, I always do a walk around. It's the pilot monitoring's duty, regardless of your rank. So after the uh, trips I ever did, unless we had an extra pilot on board, in which case, you know, he didn't have much to do, so he used to do it. I always did a walk around. I used to quite enjoy it, particularly when the weather was nice. Uh, and, um, yeah, there, there's a very specific list of things you are supposed to check. Uh, and most of those are things that are really vital, like walking past the static vents and making sure that someone hasn't left uh, any tape over them or there's nothing obscuring them, trying to peer, although it's pretty hard, into the pitot tubes to see if... Uh, there's any blockages that you can see, uh, or certainly no one's left covers on. Making sure things like radome latches are done up, engine cowl latches. You, not much you can do about all the cargo doors and things like that. And some of the service doors will still be open because the aircraft's often still being replenished. So can't do that. But you're looking at the general condition and you're, you're peering around trying to pick up things that uh, just might uh, be worth mentioning to the uh, engineer. Indeed, one of our captains uh, spotted some nicks on uh, a uh, first uh, set of blades. And I think it was even the first set. It might have been the second set, the one behind. And uh, when it was investigated, I found that the aircraft had had quite severe uh, foreign object damage and uh, had to be replaced. So that was a damn good spot. And when you, uh, when you do a walk around, if you have that sort of thing in your mind, that, um, uh, you know, this is my airplane, I'm going to take it flying, I'm responsible for it, and I need to make sure it's, uh, in my mind, as good as it can be at this stage. Obviously, you can't check everything because there's a lot to be done to the airplane uh, that you're going to have to rely on the engineer 
that does the final uh, checks before uh, you uh, push back to make sure that you're right. But you can do your best. I, I, it just annoys me when people in our profession don't act professionally. Mm-hmm. And well, we've talked about this before, um, Nick, sorry, Dana, um, that a uh, little bit different operation for Dana and I when we're operating domestically and operating several legs in a day. Um, we don't always have the engineer that uh, does the walk around as well. Now, going through major hubs, yes, uh, usually. But, um, you know, we go to a lot of these outstations and we don't have um, our, our own company's maintenance. If something is noted and is not right, then we bring in contract maintenance people to get it fixed. And I, the other thing I was going to say is that it also depends on, you know, this is the first flight of the day or it's the first time that you are flying that particular airplane. I think that we do a little bit more thorough, not that they aren't thorough all the time, but we do pay attention to more things uh, as, such as what uh, Nick talked about, the static vents and the, and the pedo uh, tubes and that kind of thing. Because if we are on the second or third leg of that particular airplane, we've already flown it. We know that obviously the static ports and the pedo ports are not covered uh, because we just flew it. So, you know, there, it, it ranges in complexity and, and uh, thoroughness, actually, I think. Well, you know, to, to what you, to what you guys said and, and both excellent, uh, you know, you both covered very, very well. I'm just going to add to just my two cents on that is, is that it's in the company SOP as to how we're supposed to do the walk around, what we're supposed to look at. And quite frankly, when Jeff and I at our airline go in for our nine month check ride every nine months, we have to go in and we're evaluated really on two things. We're evaluated on limitations and we're evaluated uh, in, as far as oral briefing goes. Let me be a little more specific. Uh, we're evaluated on the uh, limitations of the aircraft, and we're evaluated on the walk-around slides because they want to know that we know what we're looking at when we're doing when we're walking around the aircraft, and it's very specific uh, to each individual type of aircraft as to what you look for. Uh, and you know, I one thing I do disagree with you, Jeff. I, I agree with you to a certain extent, but I disagree with you because I've been doing walk-arounds for a long time as well. Um, every walk-around I do is very thorough. It doesn't matter whether it's the first flight of the day or not. It's, it's to me, uh, every time I walk around the aircraft, um, it's a very thorough walk around, especially the first flight that I have the aircraft. Now, the second, third flight, yes, I'm going to go out and check to make sure that there's no significant damages, leakage, et cetera, et cetera. So my first walk around is very thorough. And then subsequent walk arounds on the same airplane on the same day will be a little bit more lax. But, That's what uh, I said. Mm, you, you're talking about uh, first first flight of the day versus as no, well. No, no. I was saying that if we had flown that airplane, if it were the first flight of the day and or we've, okay. uh, we've flown it several legs, then we know that there are certain things that obviously are okay because we've already flown the airplane. So okay. Was, it's my misunderstanding. I, I, okay. I misunderstood the way, way it came That's across. Right. So, and don't you yes, ever then, disagree with me again. Well, you want to know what? Then we're in complete and total agreement, sir. I salute <laughs> you, sir. <laughs> That's better. <laughs> That's the way it should be That's around this place. Be, damn it. <laughs> anyway, um, so yes, thorough walk arounds, and Dana is exactly correct when it comes to what is specified, what we what we are to look at, and all, but basically, you're looking at the airworthiness of the airplane. Is it safe to fly? And uh, obviously, if you go out there and you know, there's a big puddle of hydraulic fluid or oil, you know, you you go, hmm, that doesn't look good. That's probably there's probably something wrong here. I should get somebody to 
kind of look at this and see what's going on. Do I feel safe getting on this aircraft and flying it through the air at uh, you know six, seven miles above the surface of the Earth, uh, going 450 miles an hour? Do I feel safe being on that airplane? That's the question I ask myself. Mm-hmm. Captain Al makes a good point. This is a, one example of uh, what I'm talking about. As an example, there's no point checking for the gear pins if you've just flown the airplane. You know, but the first time I've flown that airplane, you can bet that when I'm out there looking at the where the gear pin holes are, I'm making sure that those don't have anything in them. But if this is my second or third flight on that airplane on that day, I know that, you know, well, you know, I still look at them because, you know, who knows, some crazy person might stick something in there, I guess. But yeah, I was going people, to say, who's, who's the same maintenance just didn't come around and, yeah. and, and do an inspection? Uh, engineers have a habit of carrying spare pins in their <laughs> damn back pockets. And yeah. uh, that's disregard that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, never mind. All right. That was a good discussion. Thank you, Greg, for the question. Um, and yeah, as Nick and Dana said, there, there are levels of professionalism as well. And apparently the guy that you saw from Jetstar, uh, I mean, apparently, I don't know if that's really, uh, was a, uh, a nonchalant or a bad walk around or if it isn't, he was just making it look like it, it was easy. Well, and, and that is, you know, we're not opening up, as Nick said, we're not opening up panels, uh, other than. Uh, I, you know, I open up the water service panel, make mm-hmm. sure we have enough water on the airplane. But other than that, I'm pretty much walking around the airplane, just kind of looking at it. So, uh, it, you know, I might uh, touch the tires and, 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 and bend over and inspect, you know, the brake wear pins and so forth and so on. But, you know, it's a matter of perception. So maybe he was doing the prescribed walk around just the way that, that it was perceived. Uh, you know, that's a possibility. Mark. I'm not saying that's the way it was, Greg, but I'm just throwing... You know, you know, I like to play devil's advocate sometimes, and I think uh, that's a good good scenario to play devil's advocate. Maybe he was doing it properly. Yeah. He may have been doing so, that's for sure. All right, let's move on to Ben. Um, notice this article, Air New Zealand A321 link, article below on the New Zealand Herald, which I thought might be of interest, just to also put my two cents as well with the Air New Zealand replacing it's A320 um, CEOS. Oh, I guess the um, current engine option with the new A321 and A320 Neos. Could this be another possible max problem where the aircraft has been upgraded too many times, causing dangerous pitching and a possibility of accidents? Also, at the start of the year, I was able to attend the New Zealand Cadet Forces National Aviation Courses, which are a five day and two week course, respectively, both gliding and powered at Matamata and Woodburn Air Base, uh, Royal New Zealand Air Force Base, where I was able to get both my gliding and powered wings. Nick, do you know if the British Cadet Forces have courses like this? Tailwinds and Blue Skies, Ben. Um, we'll answer that question uh, that he had for you, Nick, uh, after we discuss this quickly, I'm uh, assuming. Uh, the article that he refers to... Um, Let's see. Operators of Airbus A321neo aircraft, including Air New Zealand, have been alerted by European aviation safety regulators to circumstances in which the nose of the airplane could pitch up. A European Union safety, Aviation Safety Agency has warned the behavior of the elevator aileron computer installed on A321neos can cause excessive pitch attitude that could result in reduced control of the airplane. The fault is most likely to occur on the final approach phase. Uh, particularly if a hard maneuver is attempted, such as a large correction to the aircraft's angle of attack. The temporary revision instructs airlines not to load their A321neos with a center of gravity as far rearward 
as currently permitted, so the weight is not towards the rear of the aircraft, and the directive says that they must change the aircraft flight manuals accordingly. Analysis of the behavior of a computer installed on A321neo revealed that excessive pitch attitude can con uh, occur in certain conditions and during specific maneuvers. This condition, if not corrected, could result in reduced control of the airplane. Um, Air New Zealand says it has been advised of the potential problem which could affect planes with excessive tail-heavy loading. Uh, a spokeswoman said, we don't load our A321s in this way, so the issue has no impact on our operations. This country's Civil Aviation Authority has also been contacted for comment. Air New Zealand, blah, 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 blah. So um, I don't think it's the same thing at all as the, uh, the MAX problem and the uh, MCAS uh, whole debacle. Um, but uh, obviously it's something that is a concern to some of the, um, the safety agencies. But I don't think it's uh, to the same level of concern and risk. Uh, but I don't know because I'm not an Airbus guy. So, you know, what do you think, Nick? I don't know either, actually. Uh, it's a little bit outside my uh, experience. Um, so, I don't know. Um, these normally are just uh, a, an amendment to a technique until they get a, a software fix in. Uh, so, they're pretty standard when you get a, um, uh, a maintenance requirement or a, uh, an amendment to your QRH like this. So, um, no, I would say it's not a it's not a big problem. Uh, if it was, uh, the aircraft would uh, be grounded. Be, uh, yeah, would have yeah. a more yeah a faster improvement. So there are always a number of these um, in the back of the QRH uh, that Airbus know about, and uh, they want you to be aware of. And it might be uh, an implementation of a slightly different emergency procedure or uh, a regime of flight that you need to be careful of uh and uh, you just take a look at them before each flight and go right okay if this happens we'll do this if that happens we'll do that and they're usually belt and braces so it's not usually considered a major problem otherwise the aircraft wouldn't be allowed to fly uh, but uh, they've noted a problem it'll take them a while to get around to it in the yeah. meantime this is what you do as a uh, as a fix uh, as a pilot and Possible, yeah. Captain Al in the uh, chat room, um, who flies this type of airplane, he says the Neos have a temporary CG restriction. It's only a small change, and the what's E L A C was that electronic something or something computer? I don't know what that stands for. Is expected uh, imminently, and it's incredibly difficult to get this far aft under normal circumstances. On the 320, you'd have to load only cabin or C cabin and put all the bags in hold four, which I guess is not a normal way of loading the airplane. I guess not. I just think, I mean, crying out loud, the airplane that we fly, they still come out with, with changes and mm -hmm. in uh, airworthiness directives, uh, even to this day. I think we're in, we're in a time now, especially with the heightened sense of uh, what's going on with the 737 MAX, that anything that it pertains to a, a control issue is probably going to get more attention uh, in the media, in, in the social circles, than normally would be uh, put to it. And from, the, from what I'm seeing here, it is exactly what's going on because it's, it's really not a big deal. It's, it's a, a very minor issue. Yeah. Um, but it's being highlighted because of the fact of what's going on with, that, with the MAX, I think. All right. Thank you, Dana. Item seven. Oh, there was another question. About oh, 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 that's right. Uh, he asked you something. Air Cadets. Thank you. 
Yeah, so uh, he was able to say, uh, do you know if the British cadet forces have courses like this? So it looks like uh, he had a five-day and two-week course uh, available respectively for both gliding and power, um, where I was able to get my gliding and powered wings. Well, of course, things have changed a lot since I did my uh, gliding courses uh, only a mere <laughs> 45, 47 years ago. So things have changed slightly, so I'm having to rely on the squinty net now. And the squinty net says that you would start with a gliding introduction course. Uh, so it would be either in a Vigilant motor glider or a Viking winch launched glider. And uh, the course, there are three different courses, and it would consist of a certain number of minutes flying or a number of launches. And you would be shown basic things like uh, how the pitch uh, changes the aircraft, how the rudder affects the aircraft, blah, 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 you know, the basics of handling an aircraft. Um, and if you did well enough at that, then you could be awarded a gliding scholarship course. And that course, uh, once you've completed uh, gliding introduction course one, two, and three, would uh, take you uh, hopefully all the way up to um, solo. Uh, so uh, you would normally complete the course uh, and wear blue wings, but if uh, you're, it shows sufficient aptitude then, and are allowed to progress to solo stand, you get a set of silver wings. And um, then in addition, there are pilot schemes, which are in powered aircraft, all those are in uh, gliders or motor gliders, uh, and there are uh, nearly 140 light aircraft courses available to air cadets each year, and a further 27 places available uh, at Air Experience flights. And uh, there, um, a, a number of hours in a proper powered aircraft. And then, indeed, on top of that, there are flying scholarships, which go even further. And just for uh, cadets that uh, don't get to, into one of these formal courses, then there are always the uh, air experience flights, which happen once, twice a year when every cadet gets a chance to have 20 minutes or half an hour flying around in a light aircraft. And uh, they're shown how, what it's all about. And uh, so, yeah, the air cadets do have a number of uh, flying and gliding courses available to them. So I think it's all brilliant. 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 All right. Thank you, Nick, for answering Ben's second questions. Um, Mike Smith from Maynard, Massachusetts, writes in, I started to write an email, but I figured I'd give you your vocal cords a break and instead send some audio feedback about flying into Oshkosh Air Venture 2019. Hi gang, Mike the Sonics guy from Boston here. It was really a pleasure meeting with everyone at the Air Force Museum and dinner after. Then Liz and Dr. Steph when we were passing by the motorhome in Camp Scholar. I got into AirVenture on Sunday when others were not and I thought my experience was worth a little storytelling. Anyone who flew into AirVenture this year knows how difficult that was at the start of the show due to the soft, wet ground conditions. On Sunday, I was south of Osh in Waukesha trying to figure out what to do. The ATIS said they were only letting in Tundra tires, display aircraft, or aircraft with reserved hard surface parking areas. Hmm, 
Uh, let's see, the Sonics company is located on the Osh Airport at the East Ramp, and they have a homecoming event the Sunday before the show from 10 to 2 for Sonics's. It was 9 a.m. in Waukesha. I told my wife to drive me to the airport right away. I had a plan. I took off and headed north. Not too many aircraft in the Fisk approach due to the restrictions. The Fisk controller asked each aircraft to confirm they had Tundra tires or display aircraft or aircraft with a reserved hard surface parking area. When they asked me, I said, local traffic, east T-hangers. The controller paused. He's not a local. Uh, is that hard surface parking? Uh, affirmative, I said. Okay, right turn to 090 degrees for runway 36 left approach. I made the landing on the yellow dot and put up my sign in the windscreen. Local traffic, east T-hangers. They taxied me over to Sonex and I parked. It was 11.30 and I was in. I got lunch at Sonex and chatted with a bunch of people. As they do every year, around 1 p.m., the Sonex company aircraft lined up to taxi across the field to their display area. I had already gotten a report from a friend on the other side that the usual Sonex show parking area was dry and firm, so I just jumped into my Sonex and tagged onto the end of the line of company aircraft and headed across the field. The Sonics aircraft were taxied off of Papa to the new Sonics show location, and that just happened to pass right by the usual Sonics parking area. So I let the company aircraft keep going, and I simply shut down, hopped out, and pulled my plane across the grass to the parking area. I was in. Had I not, I might not have gotten in until Tuesday due to the restrictions and then all the saturation of the Fisk approach. Anyway, it was a lot of fun at uh, Oshkosh again this year. This is my 17th year in a row, and uh, just love it every year. Really happy to see everybody, and uh, wish I'd gotten to spend a little more time with y'all. But blue skies, tailwinds, and IPAs. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> we need to change ours. Blue skies. What do you say? Uh, Forgotten it already. Yeah. IPAs is all I remember. <laughs> <laughs> blue sky skies tailwinds and ipas all right but i would have to say oh, blue skies tailwinds. blue skies tailwinds and ipas there you and go. bourbon <laughs> whatever thank you mike smith sonics pilot it was a pleasure meeting you both uh at the u.s air force museum and also at oshkosh and uh thanks for sharing your uh, story of how you got in there um this was interesting. Uh, John Picard uh, gave us a link to an article from Airspace Magazine, Air and Space Magazine. Airshow star David Martin always wondered what, would, what it would be like to fly every day. In 2011, smoke on and flying for the fun of it. Oh, that's the caption for that uh, photo. Uh, David Martin has always loved to fly. From the time he got his pilot's license at 17, he knew that flying uh, for him was more than a casual pastime. He loved it so much that even as a teenager, he started thinking about what it would be like to fly every day for a whole year. In 2014, he decided to find out. He flew every day that year and the next and the next. I didn't plan to fly as many days as I did, Martin says. I kind of relate it to a runner who starts out and just keeps running. That's uh, Forrest Gump, right? What did that? From that day on, if I was going somewhere, I was running. Anyway. Seems like all of a sudden it was two years after that. I honestly, seriously was going to stop at 1,000 days. I thought, that's a good number. The day that was going to be the 1,000th day, I went to get a physical and my doctor said, why would you stop? Why don't you just keep going? So I decided, okay, I'll keep going. 
On December 31st, 2018, Martin flew his last consecutive daily flight on day 1,826. He had flown every day for five straight years. Martin says there were a number of circumstances that made flying all those days in a row possible. First, he lives in the middle of Texas, where there's always, uh, almost always one-mile visibility. Uh, the Federal Aviation Administration minimum under visual flight rules and daytime uncontrolled airspace. In five years, there was never a day that was fogged in all day long, says Martin. I live in a lake, and the airport is right beside the lake. All you have to do is get high enough to fly around over the lake and come back and land. Second, he has a lot of airplanes. Seven, plus a few others under restoration that are in pieces. I probably flew my Piper Cub the most because it's easy to push out, and it's my favorite airplane, he says. If it was down to one airplane, that would have to be it. I just like puttering around in it. Currently, he performs in Beach Baron, a Beach Baron, flying an engine-out performance similar to the routine made famous by Bob Hoover in a Rockwell Oh, we saw him just by Oshkosh. Oh, you did? Yeah. Very nice. I he didn't did, see that. He did engine-out uh, aerobatics and oh. an engine-out landing. Very cool. Yeah. I, I missed that. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, saw, I saw that with you, Nick. Yeah, it was good, wasn't it? Yeah, that's when we were there with Nige. Yeah. Um, traveling to air shows and performing filled a number of the summer days in his total time aloft. Uh, during the late winter and spring, though, having a variety of aircraft to choose from was especially important. It gets pretty windy in his hometown of Possum Kingdom Late Lake, Texas. The winds here can blow 40 to 50 miles per hour all day long. That's when he climbed into the cockpit of one of his aerobatic airplanes, a French CAP-232 or a two-seat German Extra 300. The aerobatic aircraft were actually better in the wind, says Martin, who was the 2001 U.S. aerobatic champion. They have so much control authority that they can handle a lot of wind taking off and landing. Anyway, uh, the, the article goes on. You can read the rest of it by uh, heading over to the show notes, but that is quite an accomplishment to fly every single day consecutively for five years straight. That's pretty amazing. You sure he's not a mad dog pilot? Sounds like, <laughs> sounds like my job. Yeah, not quite. I mean, he covers the obvious that once you start getting into it and you don't want to break uh, mm -hmm. the chain, of course, you might be encouraged to fly on days when the conditions really aren't suitable. Mm -hmm. So that's, I mean, that's the only drawback. And particularly, he's obviously a, a pretty experienced guy and he wasn't, uh, you know, that uh, concerned about making uh, a particular number. He was just doing it for fun. But of course, if someone deliberately set out to try and beat that record, and that's what would concern me because, you know, mm -hmm. you end up making decisions that you really shouldn't alter. Right. Good point. Kind of uh, at, in contrast with uh, good flight safety, possibly. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Um, Tim, one of our producers, Tim Van Ram. Have you heard of that guy? Um, uh, possibly. Yeah. I think he's from San Fran or uh, Frisco, one of those places. Frisco. Yeah. He's from. Betty in the Sky with a Suitcase podcast is so much fun to listen to. In her episode 168, poof, she explores the attire that airline pilots choose to wear on layovers. Okay. So uh, a lot of the people that listen to this show also subscribe to Betty in the Sky with a Suitcase podcast. She's very funny. Me, me, I yeah, do. I do too. And um, uh, let's see. I'm going to play a little excerpt from, and I asked Betty if it was okay if I played some of these clips from her latest podcast. And she said, I hope that it wasn't too offensive. And I said, oh no, you're dead to me. 
<laughs> Can you describe the way that pilots dress on layovers? White tennis shoes, yes. baseball cap, the team or the university sweatshirt or t-shirt. <laughs> what about it for the bottoms? Jeans or shorts. Or like old jeans. Old jeans or shorts with a high socks, high white socks. Yes, the wrong socks. Yes. How would you describe the way pilots dress on layovers? Disgusting. <laughs> I said all American. Yeah, that's a good one. But um, most of them do not have any style. <laughs> that's what So um, it's kind of like baggy clothes and big shirts and Hawaiian styles and anything goes. I think they are very easy to recognize on layover. <laughs> they are. You can tell them from a mile away. But it's getting better. Some are getting really? much better, yeah. Oh, I that's think, good. Uh, but uh, usually, you look at your other uh, shoes. Yes. Either they work the, either they wear their work shoes, or they wear uh, ten years old or fifteen years old sneakers. Sneakers. Yes. yes. And the wrong, so, the wrong color. Maybe yeah, wrong color. Can you describe what pilots uh, dress like on layovers? Duds. <laughs> Jeans and a shirt of some sort just bland pretty bland yeah pretty bland pretty bland pretty yeah. safe yeah that's good that's a just good word say two outfits <laughs> predictable <laughs> boring i was going with Unimagin bland unimaginative <laughs> airplane teens. oh yeah 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 oh oh always jeans usually high water yeah, so yes i say like usually yes. high water because we can see their airplane socks yes like and not they, good jeans and a lot of times they tuck in the shirt. Yes, they tuck in the shirt. But you yeah. know, we can even, um, because we're at hotels with other airlines, we can tell the pilots from other airlines. You can mm -hmm. always tell. Yes. It's like they have a uniform. Right. Do you know the game that they play on some radio shows where they show a picture of a man and you have to guess whether they're gay or European? <laughs> it's what I mean. It's close. So it's like skinny jeans on yeah. and so skinny they have, pants. Off the collar. Yes. Yeah. They, have, they wear the skinny pants. Yes. Yeah. Much yes. higher. Mm -hmm. Much tighter. Yes. Like skin Much tight. Yeah. yeah. And the shoes. Okay. Boring. <laughs> That's what I was saying. Bland. <laughs> Bland. Boring. Yeah. Okay. That, I think there were actually some more. I didn't play all of them. Um, but she was a, a sport letting me play that on our show. And uh, no, we're not offended at all. And uh, in fact, we've we've witnessed the same thing. <laughs> Betty. Um Anyway, Absolutely. I mean, I used to have a special set of clothes that I would bring to America so I didn't stand out from the, <laughs> the, the crowd, you know, and they were like the daggiest clothes <laughs> you've ever seen. Uh, and, uh, you know, I would never normally wear white socks and trainers and jeans, but I always did in the States. Mm -hmm. uh, because, uh, you know, if you dress like a European, then, uh, you know, people will single you out as a tourist or a visitor. Up. <laughs> exactly right. So I used to clip on my Colt 45 and wear my baseball cap and my daggy clothes, and uh -huh. I used to feel right at home. I love uh, Betty's laugh. When she starts chuckling, it's just uh, contagious. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, anyway, Tim Van Ram uh, continues, other flight attendants attest to this phenomenon that uh, layover pilots are easily identifiable, so much so that they can tell the difference between which airline the fashion duds work for. Uh, so anyway, he just basically goes over exactly what um, we just excerpted from uh, episode 168. Poof, if you haven't 
subscribed to Betty in the Sky with a Suitcase podcast, please do. Um, we'll put a link to that in the show notes so you can uh, subscribe to it. As I said, many of the people that listen to this show already do, and I think that you'd really enjoy it. Betty, when I was born, they broke the mold. I don't look like a pilot. Don't really don't dress like a pilot, although I dress very casual. Um, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Well, sorry, Tim. I mean, I, I don't wear the high white socks. I don't wear the old tennis shoes. I wear uh, usually a very nice pair of shorts and some type of t-shirt or polo short shirt. Uh, I always wear a cap, and that's in everyday life because, well, I'm just bald, <laughs> and I hate being bald. You're sounding so. a little defensive. Yes, well, I am defensive, <laughs> but I don't wear baseball. I wear a flat cap now. Okay. So. Um, that's fair. That's fair. All right. Um, hmm. I think it might be time for us to do this week's installment of the old pilot's plane tales. What do you guys think? Mm-hmm. Let's go for it. All right. The old pilot's plane tale. The disappearance of Miss Hobart. In the way of a Miss Marple's novel, when Miss Hobart vanished without trace. During a journey between Launceston and Melbourne in Australia, it was a mystery that needed solving. Sadly, unlike the stories of amateur detectives that Agatha Christie wrote about, the whereabouts of Miss Hobart was a conundrum that would never be answered. Miss Hobart's last message had been, Over Redondo Island, all's well. The year was 1934, and along with Miss Hobart's disappearance, another twelve people passed into oblivion as well. Two were Miss Hobart's crew, Mr. Gilbert Jenkins and Captain V.C. Holyman of Holyman Airways, for Miss Hobart was a de Havilland 86. The DH-86 was also known as the de Havilland Express, a four-engine biplane developed from the successful de Havilland Dragon and used extensively on routes around Australia and other parts of the British Empire. What was remarkable about the disappearance of this particular aircraft into the Bass Straits, between the island of Tasmania and the mainland of southern Australia, wasn't so much the crash, but one of the passengers who was lost and the effect that it would have on the entire aviation industry. The passenger in question had no connection with aviation at all, other than he was flying in Miss Hobart. He was an Anglican missionary, the Reverend Hubert Warren. He was travelling to Sydney to take up his post in a new parish. He left behind a wife and four children, one of whom was his eight-year-old son, David. A parting gift to David from his father had been a crystal radio set, which the boy treasured deeply. After tinkering with this clever little device, David learned how it worked, and 
within a few years, was making and selling copies to boys at his school for five shillings each. This last gift from his father had launched a love affair with science that would change his life and the world of commercial flying and save countless lives. In his twenties, David Warren graduated from Sydney University with a science degree, a diploma from Melbourne University and a PhD in chemistry from Imperial College London. And he became a lecturer in chemistry at the University of Sydney. However, David had a growing fascination in the burgeoning subject of rocket science, and before long he was posted to the Woomera rocket range as a scientific officer. This led to him being taken on by the Aeronautical Research Labs, part of the Australian Defence Department, where he rose to the post of Principal Research Scientist. He had a brilliant and inquiring mind, no doubt, but how was this going to be turned in the direction of air safety? You will, I hope, recall No Highway in the Sky, the tale I told of the troubled beginnings of civil jet transport when the very first jet-powered airliners, de Havilland Comets, began to fall from the sky. In 1953, David Warren was loaned to the expert panel of investigators who were trying to piece together the cause of the comet losses. As a researcher for the fuels that these new jet turbines needed, it was David's job to investigate the likelihood of fuel being a factor in the crashes and to calculate the effects of fuel tank explosions. When debris from a crash comet was finally recovered, David's research showed that the fuel on board the comet did not explain the damage that the aircraft had received and that the cause lay elsewhere. However, his exposure to the investigation led him to conclude that the biggest problem the team had in solving the answer was the lack of data. He went back to his lab and wrote a very short technical memo on the need to record data in aircraft that would aid crash investigation, entitled A Device for Assisting Investigation into Aircraft Accidents. David Warren wasn't the first to come to his conclusion. Back in the late 30s, Francois Husseneau and Paul Bodine had created a Type HB flight recorder from scrolling photographic film, which used a ray of light, deflected by a mirror, to record data. This style of recorder was still in use by the French flight test centres well into the 1970s. It was a single-use device. Once the film was exposed, it couldn't be reused, which prevented its popular adoption. During World War II, Len Harrison and Vic Husband, who worked at Farnborough in the UK, had developed a recorder that used styli, linked to various instruments and control services, which left indentations on a roll of soft copper foil. Also in 1942, the Finns devised a recorder that was used at its main aircraft factory in Tampere during test flights of their fighters, and both British and American forces had experimented with intercom voice recorders which used magnetic wire. These recordings allowed the voices of those brave aircrew to be played to the public over the radio. 
but despite these early efforts, nobody had come up with a complete answer to the problem of how to record flight and voice data for the growing commercial aviation market. As Warren started looking into ways to solve the dilemmas presented to accident investigators, Professor Crash Ryan of the University of Minnesota was filing a patent for a coding apparatus for flight recorders and the like. His original device, called the General Mills Flight Recorder, kept a record of flight conditions by recording changes in velocity, altitude and gravitational forces on a strip of aluminium foil in a similar way to that of the British device, and Ryan is credited with producing the first crash-resistant data recorder. Back at the Comet accident investigation, David Warren knew that in order to get a complete picture of what might have caused an aircraft crash, as much data as possible should be recorded, including the sounds that occurred within the cockpit. It was earlier, in 1953, whilst he was attending a trade show, that he had caught sight of a German-made miniature voice recorder that was being offered to businessmen to dictate memos. David had acquired a device so that he could use it to record swing and jazz and make bootleg copies of his favourite musician, Woody Herman. He recalled thinking that if a businessman had been using one of these in a plane and we could find it in the wreckage and we played it back, we'd say, we know what caused this. Any sounds that were relevant to what was going on would be recorded. The chances that a recorder had been on board, of course, and survived the fiery wreck were basically nil. But what if every plane in the sky had a mini recorder in the cockpit? If it was tough enough, accident investigators would never be in this confusion again because they'd have the audio right up to the moment of the crash. At the very least, they'd know what the pilots had said and heard. The idea fascinated him, so when he got back to the aeronautical research labs, he rushed to tell his boss about it. Sadly, his superior didn't share his enthusiasm and he was firmly told... Dr. Warren, it's nothing to do with chemistry or fuels. You're a chemist. Give that to the instrument group and get on with blowing up fuel tanks. David knew his idea for a cockpit recorder was a good one, but without official support there was little he could do about it, even though the idea continued to niggle at him like an itch that couldn't be scratched. When his boss was promoted, David pitched his idea to his new superior, who was more receptive. He was urged to keep working on it, but discreetly. Since it wasn't a government-approved venture, it couldn't be seen to take up lab time or money. He was warned, If I find you talking to anyone, including me, about this matter, I'll have to sack you. A sobering thought for a young man with a wife and two children to support. However, behind the scenes he was given subtle approval and a new dictation recorder was quietly acquired as an instrument required for the laboratory. When the idea of a cockpit voice recorder was released to the aviation industry, the pilots of the day responded with fury. 
The Australian Pilots' Union branded the idea of a recorder as a snooping device and insisted that no plane would take off in Australia with Big Brother listening. Even the authorities seemed blinded to the potential of the device. Australia's civil aviation authorities declared that it had no immediate significance, and the Royal Australian Air Force feared it would yield more expletives than explanations. Around the world, pilots complained that it would be an unnecessary intrusion into their working environment and that it could be misused by the management of unscrupulous companies to victimise pilots based on private conversations on the flight deck. The bigger picture was that it would be an invaluable tool in analysing accidents and could only add to flight safety. Compromises would have to be reached which would allow pilots to erase a recording once a flight had been conducted safely, a function that has, on occasions, sadly been misused. The negative impact of his proposed recorder dismayed David and he was tempted to pack it all in. But he had a stubborn streak and in the same garage where he had built and sold little crystal sets, he continued with his development of a functioning prototype. When the first little flight recorder was being finished off in the lab, a visitor from England happened to be getting a tour of the facility and Dr. Warren was asked to explain his world-first prototype. It used magnetic steel wire to store four hours of pilots' voices plus instrument readings and it automatically erased older records so it was reusable. "'I say,' said the visitor, "'that's a damn good idea. "'Put that lad on the next courier and we'll show it in London.' So it was that David rapidly found himself on a Hastings transport aircraft making a run to England. You had to know someone pretty powerful to get a seat on it, and David wondered who this man was who was giving away round-the-world tickets to someone he'd never met. The answer was Robert Hardigam, the secretary of the British Air Registration Board and a former Air Vice Marshal in the Royal Air Force. In a near-unbelievable irony, the plane David was on lost an engine over the Mediterranean, but when the crew said to the passengers, "'Chaps, we seem to have lost a donk. Does anyone want to go back?' There was a unanimous vote to continue. However, David recorded the rest of the flight, thinking that, even if he died in that limping transport plane, at least I'd have proved the bastards wrong.' In England, David presented the ARL Flight Memory Unit to the Royal Aeronautical Establishment and some commercial instrument makers. The BBC ran TV and radio programmes examining it, and the British Civil Aviation Authority immediately started work to make the device mandatory on all civil aircraft. A Middlesex firm, S. Davil and Sons, approached ARL about the production rights and kicked off manufacturing. Although the device was protected by a strong orange-coloured casing, the common wartime term, black box, for any electronic device, was coined by a reporter, and it stuck. Flight data recorders quickly became a requirement for British commercial aircraft, but there was still strong opposition to the cockpit voice recorder element 
of this device. Australia became the first country to require the use of cockpit voice recorders after the unexplained 1960 crash of Trans-Australian Airlines Flight 538, a Fokker F-27 that hit the sea off Townsville during an approach after waiting for fog to clear. The Board of Inquiry could not determine the cause of the crash, but one of their strong recommendations was that the carriage of recorders be mandatory on civil transport aircraft, a trend that was eventually taken up by other countries. Since then, although refined and upgraded, voice plus data recordings have become mandatory in all major aircraft throughout the world. It has proved invaluable in helping to solve many air disasters since. Today's recorders are considerably more sophisticated than David Warren's original design and have added features such as internal power so they can continue to operate for a while if the aircraft power is removed, solid-state memory and digital recordings which are highly resistant to the shock of a crash. They can withstand high-impact speeds that will cause up to 3,400 Gs and a temperature of over 1,000 degrees centigrade, 1,830 degrees Fahrenheit. The case therein can also survive crushing, low temperatures, penetration, deep-sea pressure and immersion in seawater or other fluids. In addition, they're fitted with an underwater acoustic transponder which will transmit its location. They are required to be coloured bright yellow or orange with reflective surfaces and all are lettered Flight Recorder Do Not Open on one side in English and the same in French on the other to prevent inquiring minds from accidentally destroying the data. In the future, it is possible that self-ejecting recorders that can be easily found and recovered will be required, and it's possible that flight data will also be continuously transmitted live via satellite links. The NTSB has also asked for the installation of cockpit image recorders in large transport aircraft to provide information that would supplement existing data recorders. Whatever the future, Dr. David Warren's invention has helped to solve many aviation disasters and has contributed enormously towards aviation safety. For more than 50 years, Dr. David Warren's pioneering work on the black box went almost unacknowledged. Finally, in 2001, he received the Royal Aeronautical Society's Lawrence Hargrave Award and he became an Officer of the Order of Australia in 2002 for his service to the aviation industry. He never saw a penny in royalties from his invention and asked if he felt hard done by, his standard response was, Yes, the government got the results of what I did, but then... They also didn't charge me for the other hundred ideas that didn't work. He passed away in 2010, aged 85, and was buried in a casket, upon which there is a notice, surrounded by a large orange square. It reads, Flight Recorder Inventor, Do Not Open. Love it. What a great story. Yeah, I know. Thanks very much, uh, 
to Chris for uh, suggesting we cover it. Oh, I cover it. And uh, yeah, I loved it. Once I got into it and found out a little bit more about him and uh, everything that happened, it was really very intriguing. And of course, you know, it's a great discussion point on why we were, uh, we as professional pilots, not us in particular, were um, so protective of our environments that we didn't want voice recorders uh, to be uh, recording what happens on the flight deck. And now uh, in the second sort of phase, the next phase, why uh, pilots are now being very protective about uh, having cameras on flight deck. But, you know, the safety people say, well, it's, it's vital to know if the information you as pilots are seeing is the same information that we get on the data recorder because, of course, your instruments might be in error, which might be a reason you're led into a crash. And we can only find that information by looking at a camera to see what in, what your instruments are giving you at the moment of a crash or an incident. So, you know, there are pros and cons. And my personal feeling is that, uh, particularly since I've retired, is uh, that um, you know every single every single avenue should be uh, uh, investigated to ensure that we get the most information we can. Um, yeah, excellent job, Nick, on the uh, the this plane tales. It was it was fantastic, uh, very very uh, informative as to where it all started and how it all started. Uh, you know, as far as video recorders and the flight tech, I think, um, unfortunately, I think it's going to happen eventually. Um, I don't see it not happening, especially in our day and age. Uh, but, you know, our, our, you know, I can see where the big fear is throughout all, all the years, and that is, you know, the company is going to use it for enforcement action. You know, we're, we're in a position that we're married to the company. I mean, it's not like we can just go out and go to another airline. So it, it's but they're already I, I, they're already using things uh, like you know call it um, the uh, Foqua programs uh, monitors and triggers and stuff like that are recording things and you can get executive act or administrative action uh, taken because of doing that. Of course, we have safeguards that uh, protect our professions like the ASAP program and that kind of thing. But I would imagine that if we had. Uh, video recording as well, it would fall under that same kind of umbrella of, of uh, risk and, uh, and safety from, you know, undeserved, um, what? Yeah, un unscrupulous yeah. management who, who want to pin us to the wall um, right. and um, overly uh, punitive flight safety departments who want to discipline pilots for Declare actions. No, we we should by now have a no jeopardy safety culture in every airline in every country in the world. I don't think we're quite there yet, but certainly in uh, America and Europe, I think it's pretty well established, and I don't think any of us should fear. Um, because quite honestly, um, I'm a great believer that if uh, if we're doing things on the flight deck that uh, we're trying to hide from anybody then we shouldn't be doing them. So, I mean, it's our professional environment. Uh, I realize there's an argument that no one else in the world or very few places in the world do people have uh, such close scrutiny on what they do uh, every minute of their working day in their office. 
But we're in a different category, and I think we should be accountable for what goes on on the flight deck and be prepared to stand up for ourselves and defend ourselves if people question our actions. Uh, so that's, for me, part and parcel of uh, being uh, closely monitored because, after all, it drives a safer environment. It, it does, and, and I, I can't disagree with you on that. I, I, I honestly think, and this is just me speaking outside of the box a little bit, but I think if uh, Ethiopian or Lion Air, if there's a, a video recorder up there in the flight deck, we'd have a, a much better picture of, of what those guys uh, were going through at the time uh, dealing with that 737-800 MAX. Um, yeah, good point. We, we, I mean, we do have a good picture now because we can tell by the instrumentation and, and, you know, and where the, the control forces were. But we, you know, we don't know how that person was interacting uh, directly with the airplane, how much they were fighting, and, and, and we don't have that picture. So yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, that, that would have been some, some key information. And I agree with you, Nick. I think, uh, you know, I'm not one that uh, does anything in flight deck that uh, would ever harm or jeopardize. I have nothing to hide. I fly the airplane and, and operate the, uh, the airplane in, in a safe manner by our SOPs. I, you know, I'm not one of those ones that uh, um, do things that are outside the, the realm of what we're required to do and how we and how we're told to do it. Uh, I, I do know, you know, in the long haul, you, I mean, uh, one of the things that was very interesting to me for you is while well, you're coming across the pond, uh, you know, coming to visit us and you're texting. Uh, yeah, exactly that, that's right. Some, that's something that forever has now, I mean, and now you can do it if you're in the back of the airplane on your crew rest. But for us, with the FAA, we can't do it. Look, look at me. I can look at your, your your picture right now and see a beard on your face. We can't have that, right? So there, there are different cultures in different parts of the world that, um, you know, you know, for example, going overseas. I, I've never flown an international flight long haul, but what do you do for six, seven, eight hours? You well, text, you text, and you read, right? You do something to keep yourself occupied so long as it doesn't interrupt with your professional duties. That and, wouldn't uh, be the case with us. Yeah. We're not allowed to read. We're not allowed to have a newspaper or technically speaking or look at anything else other than professional as far as looking at our iPad, reading the FOM or, or reading current operational procedures or anything similar. Technically speaking, we're not supposed to have any of those items. Yeah, I mean, who would want to read anything else? Exactly. I mean, who would want to read, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, USA Today? I mean, I don't know anybody that would, anyways, or the Wall Street Journal, or, <laughs> or you know, any, any of the. I mean, but that's that, those are my points. I mean, I'm not saying that I do that because I really don't. Um, but you know, that there's a difference in cultures here, so that's why I think uh, there will be some some blowback on that. That's, and I'm just playing devil's advocate. I agree with you, and Nick. Well, there there will be blowback, that's for sure. But I think eventually. Um, the uh, the people that are pushing for it will prevail, whether we like it or not. <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, I think if you asked our passengers, they would say, oh, for heaven's sake, you know, we need this stuff. If it makes our journey safer, then do it. Uh, and after all, if you think about it, they're the people that pay our wages, ultimately. And uh, I think, um, you know, it's 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 a requirement. I think it should be in there sooner rather than later. 
Well, I think we should stop talking about this and move on to number 11. Sure. And this is from Ant Pruitt. Send us some audio feedback and take it away, Ant. Hey there, APG crew. My name is Ant Pruitt, and I wanted to leave some feedback slash ask a question or two. I won't take up too much of your time um, because, you know, I'm not quite as enlightened as most of the APG listeners are that have all of these well thought out questions and so forth. And um, first and foremost, um, I enjoy your show and I really appreciate what you guys do as far as uh, being an inspiration to the um, aviation community. So shout out to all of you there. Um, But anyway, on to my questions. Uh, I fly out of Charlotte pretty much all the time, and the uh, aircraft of choice for my airline is usually a Mad Dog or a B-717. Now, I know that both Captain Jeff and Captain Dana uh, are the Mad Dog pilots of the crew. Um, far as, like, cross-training or anything like that, uh, do you guys find yourselves, you know, having to switch to the B-717 um, instead of the Mad Dog here and there, depending on the trip. Uh, is that something that could potentially happen, or is that something that airlines try to stay away from because of, you know, certifications and things of that nature? I was curious about that. And I only ask because nine times out of ten, I don't know what the aircraft is just from glancing at it because they look so similar when you see them um, parked at the gate. Uh, but I was just curious. So that's the first question. Second question. Recent um, flight coming out of uh, Columbia, I believe, heading to GSP. Uh, an engine went out on the plane, and the pilot was able to, to safely get the, the plane landed in GSP with one engine, and there was no issues as far as, uh, like, safety to the passengers or anything like that in the crew. Everybody was fine. Um, just, you know, crap happens, if you will. Have any of you pilots, uh, all of you, had to experience uh, an air emergency? You probably have. I haven't heard it on the podcast episodes that I've listened to, but I was just curious. Have you had any type of serious uh, aircraft emergencies where you said, oh, crap, we need to get this plane on the ground safely right now? Um, But that's it. Those are my two questions. Thank you again. And also, for the record, I am still starstruck from meeting Dr. Steph um, several months ago here in Charlotte with uh, Miss Tanya, a mutual friend. And, um, yeah, it is what it is. (laughs) You all take care. Thanks again for everything you do for the aviation community and the aviation geeks and nerds like myself. We'll catch you later. Well, thanks, Ant. Um, We're starstruck when we you know, see you, <laughs> uh, by the way, um, when he recorded this, I don't believe he knew at that point, I guess, maybe not that uh, he was going to take on a new job, uh, working for Leo Laporte in the uh, twit network. Uh, he's, uh, one of their new full-time employees there. And so I guess that means that he's going to be seeing a lot more airplanes around the San Francisco and Oakland, uh, the Bay area airports, uh, not just Charlotte where he, he and his family live right now. Maybe they've already made the move. I don't know. But, uh, yeah. thank you. Twitch definitely on my, uh, listening list. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that's great news for, uh, Ant. 
and uh, we're we're uh, so happy that we we know somebody uh, on the uh, on the Twit team uh, personally. So that's pretty cool. Um, so when can we get our show? No, I'm just kidding. Um, but, no, no, uh, I'm, I'm, I'll say if you would, <laughs> mate, give us a plug. Um, let's see. Switch between MDs and B seven seventeen. When we first started uh, getting the Boeing seven seventeen, um, the uh, uh, the company could have, with uh, consultation, Still there, of, excuse me. Sorry, you just froze there uh, oh. for like ten seconds, Jeff. Okay. Um, about where did I stop? When we moved from or something on the V seventeen. Okay. Uh, when we started uh, taking deliveries on the uh, Boeing seven seventeen, uh, they were owned by Airtran initially. Southwest um, merged with uh, Airtran. They were going to use and operate the seven uh, seventeen. Then they decided, nah, be best to stick with the seven three. So they put these things for sale, and uh, Acme decided that it'd be a good airplane to uh, pick up for a really good price, and a great deal, actually. Uh, one of the things in consultation with the FAA, our company um, said, well, we could make this all part of the same category, uh, along with the MD-88, the MD-90, and the Boeing 717, um, or we can make it a separate category. Now, it's still the same type rating. In fact... As many of you know, Dana and I uh, have a DC-9 type rating, although we haven't really technically flown a DC-9. Um, only a, well, a DC-9-88 um, and a DC-9-90, I guess, technically speaking. Um, so we could, uh, the company could have gone that way, but they decided to keep it simpler and keep the training separated and keep us from being confused by the different kind of, uh, the 717 has a more modern uh, display. Uh, like all in one display, bigger nav screen, you know, bigger flat panels, that kind of thing. Um, it's actually just like the MD11. Okay, just like the MD11. So you know, I think that we could, they could have gone that way, and I think the FAA would have said, "Okay, you have our blessing." But uh, ACME decided not to do that, and they keep it a separate category. Um, so uh, we can't, um, you know, on a trip, fly an MD88 on one leg or a 90, and then a 717 on another. Now we can switch between the 88 and 90. There are enough similar enough that uh, it's not a problem. So uh, that's just the way we do it at Acme. Um, I think that was all he was asking by that. Yeah, he, that's all he was asking. And, and, and quite frankly, the MD88 and MD90 product and this Boeing 717, actually 717 is uh, originally an MD95 right. and, and it's designed. So uh, the original intent was more than likely to have it all common type rating. Uh, however, with but it no, it a, is a common type rating. <laughs> oh yeah, well, so it can be yeah. Well, that is true. It's it is a, all a common in, category, in, in, a different, a common category. Yeah. Um, but with it being uh, separate, it's just the way that our company chooses to do it. I don't know anybody that operates um, the Boeing seven one seven synonymous with the the MD ninety eight. There might be eight. there might be some out there. Um, I, I don't know. I but, mean, there may be. I don't know anybody, any other airlines operate the 717 yeah. except for us, Hawaiian. But I, I do know that um, I know some people in the in that particular department that were talking about how they had a kind of a high-level discussion about whether or not to include it um, in the same category or not. And they just decided to you know, be on the safe side and make it a separate category. I think it would have been easier for the company if they just made it all one category 
give, would give, have given them a lot more flexibility, I think. But um, they decided to err on safety, I guess. But uh, anywho. Uh, that's, yeah, I mean, uh, that's unusual, actually, and very responsible, because most airlines, I would have thought, if they could legally get away with it, would have uh, chosen to have their pilots fly all the types because mm-hmm. it gives them much more flexibility. Right. Well, yeah. you know, you look at you look at the uh, automation in the uh, in in the, the differences between the seven one seven and the even the ninety. It's 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 very much a different airplane. FMS is completely different. Uh, mm-hmm. The displays are completely different. The only thing very common in it, and I just sat in the jump seat on the seven one seven. As a matter of fact, when I came up to Oshkosh. Uh, the systems were very similar, and a lot of the switches were in similar locations on the overhead p- panel. Uh, and of course, the throttle quadrant was very similar. Uh, engine, uh, the engine switches were very similar. But beyond that, um, the way the airplane flies, flies, I'm sure, is very similar. However, uh, you know, the actual operation of the aircraft, I think, is a is a very different beast. Yeah, I think that we would have been able to figure out. We're- professionals we could we could yeah i think you can but it's an interesting dilemma because uh we face the same thing on our airbus fleet Mm -hmm. moving from a twin engine aircraft weighing 212 odd tons to a four engine airplane weighing up to 359 tons uh with you know different uh software different uh procedures etc so i mean and Certainly different bits and bobs. Now that people would say, and I think quite rightly, that's a bigger step than just having glass instruments yeah. to iron instruments. I think once you get used to them, that's relatively simple. That's true. Yeah. So there you have it. That's what uh, happened at Acme when we acquired the um, 717. Um, the other question he had for us was, have any of us experienced an air emergency? Apparently it goes quiet. <laughs> nope. Everything is perfectly safe. We've never had an emergency. No, time to move on. Yep. I, I never had one of those. Don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I haven't had anything catastrophic, like, you know, major engine failure or anything like that. Have you, Dana? Uh, no. Uh, I, the closest I've ever had is uh, an oil over temperature, and we had to pull the engine back to idle, and that was in my previous carrier. Mm-hmm. Not here. I've never had, uh, other than the medical emergency, which is actually the most common yeah. emergency. Uh, that's, I mean, it's, it's almost, I hate to say it because it is an emergency, but it's almost a run of a mill type of scenario yeah. compared to losing a, 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 a function of the aircraft. Yeah. So I haven't had that yet. Hopefully never. Hopefully never. We'll see. Although we've been experiencing quite a, a higher frequency of engine failures on our mad dog fleet uh, in recent months and i'm always thinking about it <laughs> like yeah hang in there girls <laughs> hang in there hey hey ren i, I feel your pain man and, and i'm talking to somebody that i know that flies this airplane he's a feeling new captain he's had two engine failures mm. yeah well talking about bad luck dana this guy's got your beat yeah i think so um all right um i think we can move on <laughs> Well, we'll talk about it over a beer, Ant. Um, not on a layover, of course. Um, let's see. Craig, you know what? Do you mind 
Well, if I just skip a couple of these, I'm not feeling very good, guys. And um, no, no, I think you should. And I, I've got the chills, and my my fingertips are kind of um, like well, if you want to prickly. Why don't Why don't we just go ahead and call it a night, Jeff? I mean, if yeah. you're not feeling good, let's just call it. Yeah, I'm. I'm really not feeling good. But let me do just one more. I think this is kind of cute. Uh, some entertainment uh, from Civil Air Patrol Chris. He says, "Hi, Captain Jeff, uh, longtime listener, back from the Catholic pilot days." And I came up with a recording that is a spoof on Deep Thoughts from Saturday Night Live. If you would take about 30 seconds to give it a listen, and if it needs, if it meets muster for feedback part of the show, feel free to share it. Tailwinds, clear skies, and unlimited visibility. And again, this is from uh, CAP, Civil Air Patrol, and Private Pilot Chris in Atlanta. I thought it was kind of cute, so let's take a listen. Acme Airlines. A friend of mine told me he was a mad dog pilot and I was fascinated. He said his relatives flew the plane as well and I thought, does he ever wonder if he's flying it as well as his great-grandfather did? He told me that the hiring department had some pretty strange requirements as well, such as making sure that pilots did not have allergies to coal. He recalled the training manuals noting archaeologists and historians in the footnotes. As we talked, I wondered how he fit all of the needed items into his bag, including the sextant, abacus, and slide roll. And finally, he chuckled as he said that the reason for so many mad dog jokes was that Airbus pilots just did not have anything better to do on layovers. (laughs) You know, I was just thinking about uh, when he was talking about uh, coal, uh, an allergy to coal. Maybe that's what I'm suffering from right now. Black, uh, black lung. Well, there you go. Oh, yeah, that's what I sent you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and and uh, you've probably got asbestosis from all the, all the insulation that's coming yeah. down from the ceiling. <laughs> yes. All I'm that sure. old asbestos you've got stuffed around that airplane. <laughs> you should. Oh, you joke. You should see some of the interior of our airplane. <laughs> right, Dana? There are these yes. pieces that are hanging, I mean, literally falling off into the... You would you would laugh so hard, Nick, if you saw the inside of our airplane. Sometimes the trim I think, I, falling apart. I should take pictures of it. Yeah, I was going to say we need to take some photos of it and send it to him. And you should I see what it. it looks like behind, like all the glue and stuff like that. It really does look like it's not something that's safe to breathe <laughs> or be in proximity. Oh dear, of. yeah, all it's right, okay. not good. Anyway, with that, um, uh, yeah. thank you everybody for um, for for staying with us on uh, the show here. We do apologize for all the. Um, uh, technical difficulties we had with uh, streamyard.com at the beginning um but uh, we're we're still working on it trying to evaluate whether or not this is going to be a um a, a good uh, alternative to hangouts on air um and uh, I do apologize also for the fact that I'm just not 100% at all um I you can probably tell I was having more trouble with words than I usually do which is you know pretty common but uh, it was I That's was usually my problem. Worse. <laughs> I was I was worse than Dana tonight. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but, uh, I'm just, um, yeah, I, I feel like I'm, I'm coming down with something. So I might have to make a call to my, uh, crew tracking people and talk to them about what alternatives I have one more day of this trip. Um, so we'll see anyway. Uh, I'm sorry that we didn't get a chance to uh, hear from Steph. She said she did try to sneak in, but the connection sucks and couldn't get the mic to work. So unfortunately, um, uh, we're, we weren't able to uh, hear from Steph. You should have had that MacBook with you, Steph. 
that would have worked. That twelve inch. Uh, yeah, she she's traveling light today. I think. Yeah. Well, anyway. we'll be interested to hear what she has to say. Yeah, we're going to hear uh, about it. Week. It was a challenge that she uh, took on uh, with her father regarding who can log um, the num- the number of states, fifty states total, before the other. And I believe that um, I could be wrong about this, but I believe that Mike, her dad, is flying to Hawaii on Sunday. Is that right, Steph? Um, and uh, and Steph is leaving today. Probably just about to leave on an airplane if she isn't already on. And uh, she's going all over the place. I can't wait for her to describe to us um, her her routes of flight and uh, how uh, what she experienced. And of course, she promised that she's going to do some some crew logs. Right? Did you hear that from she's her? She's been think... promising that for like weeks, and she hasn't done one. Well, we're going to have to hold her to the fire on this one. Yeah. So, uh, so. yeah, Sunday. All right. So, uh, good luck, Steph, with your uh, challenge, and we hope to hear from you soon. And uh, if you want to learn more about the show, you want to send feedback, you can uh, send it to airline feedback at airlinepilotguy.com. And if you want to look at the website, it has all kinds of information about uh, the crew, the community, um, iOS and Android apps, uh, merchandise, uh, APG Live, the uh, Plain Tales um, standalone. Uh, feed and web page with a lot more information about uh, plain tales than uh, Nick covers in the uh, audio. That's kind of supplementary material that's uh, definitely something to look at and other good stuff there as well. So again, that's airlinepilotguy.com. Um, let's see. How about um, social media, the social meds? You want to talk about that, Nick? Yeah, that's uh, since Steph seems to have uh, departed the fix. Um, at APG Crew is the handle you need to attract our attention on Twitter and uh, Instagram. And on Facebook, it's the normal Facebook preamble uh, forward slash airline pilot guy. And uh, you can find our Facebook page there. And Slack, that's a semi quasi social media, uh, which is um, handled by Hillel or managed by Hillel. And Unfortunately, um, we're just going to have to play a recording of Hillel today. He's not here with me live. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K. Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1 and see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel. Um, great seeing you in Oshkosh. And um, apparently, uh, if Steph were with us today, she would have talked about the great little uh, meetup she had with Hillel and his family. Um, they uh, drove down to North Carolina, and we're able to uh, do some roller, roller, what do you call those, roller coastering, and there was Derby. Carowinds, is that, that sounds like it's in the Carolinas, is that right, does anybody know about uh, that, that park, Carowinds, sounds like uh, somewhere in the North Carolina area, anyway, um, so look forward to hearing um, about that when Steph returns, and until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds, take care, and God bless. We'll be there soon, Jeff. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye, everybody. We'll see you next time. Yeah, he's up in the sky.
good day. Such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline, I guy I fly Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, I guy I fly, oh, man, oh Airline, pilot guy 